The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today we are the harps those are words you never wanted to hear at the tail end of the 18th century if you were a person traveling along or living along the natchez trace an early highway of sorts extending roughly 440 miles from nashville tennessee to natchez mississippi linking the cumberland tennessee and mississippi rivers it meant one of three things you're about to be robbed about to be killed or both The name Harp struck terror into the hearts of the settlers of the Appalachian Mountains, and rightfully so. They were vicious murderers and rapists who didn't seem to need much of a reason to take a human life. They wouldn't hesitate to kill someone if that person had something that they wanted. They also wouldn't hesitate to kill someone if that person just happened to irritate them by doing something as harmless as snoring. Frontier settlers readied their guns and weapons, locked their doors, and formed posses to protect themselves against the Harps. And that often still wasn't enough to stop the Harps, often referred to as the Bloody Harps, or the Vicious Harps. The name Harp was synonymous with violence, death, terror, and evil at the end of the 18th century at the western edge of the American frontier. McKayja and Wiley Harp are considered the United States' first documented serial killers. Calling themselves Big and Little Harp, respectively, these two brothers left behind a trail of senseless bloodshed wherever they went. The Harps weren't like most outlaws of their era. They didn't just, uh, you know, hurt or kill people for their money or their goods. They often seemed to kill people because they felt like it. Maybe they enjoyed it. They typically didn't just uh, kill their victims, they mutilated them. The signature mark of a heart murder was a disemboweled corpse filled with rocks lying in a river somewhere in the mountain wilderness or someone with their head bashed in or nearly split in two by a tomahawk. The harps murdered victims all over the place, Tennessee, Kentucky, Illinois, and Mississippi. And that doesn't count additional places where they may have murdered innocent people during the Revolutionary War. In total, not counting the war years, The Hart brothers killed an estimated 35 to 50 men, women, children, and babies. Yes, babies. No one was safe when these two were around. Although their timeline and victim count is a bit muddy, the Harps were real people, their lives and many of their deeds documented by numerous contemporaries, and they also show up in genealogical records. 
This week, we did our best to sort through a lot of conflicting sources to determine who really were the Harp brothers. Well, for starters, they weren't actually brothers, and their names weren't Wiley and McCajun. They were savage young men who first plundered, raped, and likely killed during the chaotic years of the American Revolution when they fought on behalf of the British. They may have developed a considerable taste for violence during the war years, one they never stopped trying to satisfy when the war was over. This week, I'll share what we've learned about the Bloody Harps, the chaotic world they lived in, and a timeline of their short and violent lives. Well, I wish their lives could have been shorter. In this historical true crime, both fact and fiction point to these two guys being as bloody and vicious as it gets monstrous October edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Happy Halloween. Uh, Welcome back to the Cult of the Curious. Uh, Only welcome back this week. This is your uh, first time. Wait a minute. No, it's not Happy Halloween. I had Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween is is next, next Monday. We're a week away from Halloween. I had that in my in my brain from uh, writing about the next week's episode right before I sat down here. So you know what? Forget what I said about Halloween, but don't forget what I said about being welcome back to the Occult of Curious. Uh, if this is your first time here, uh, shut it down. Get out of here. No one fucking invited you to be here and you're not welcome. Are you still here? Okay, well, you know, I can't force you to live, I guess. Uh, I guess you can stay, but I, I do want you to shut the fuck up. No one likes it with the new guy. Shows up, starts yapping right out of the gate, maybe making fun of the host for saying it's Halloween when it's not. Just fucking sit in the corner and just d- don't bother anybody. I'm Dia Cummins, master sucker, guy who uh, kept running with the joke about uh, tires and glued together wieners last week that never re- really made a whole lot of sense, uh, you know, when I brought it up the first time. And you are listening to Time Suck. Hoping I had fun in Grand Rapids and New Holland, Michigan last week with some uh, fine disciples of the good God Amway. But I'm guessing I didn't because both those towns suck. Uh, JK. Uh, no, I bet I had fun. Uh, next up, it's Austin, Texas, Louisville, Kentucky, Kentucky, uh, where uh, a lot of today's action went down, actually. Then it's Portland, Oregon, Minneapolis, Minnesota to wrap up this year's shows. Dan TV for ticks. And then uh, uh, to go to uh, Dan TV for ticks to the 2023 spring dates as well. And I'll skip plugging those this week. I want to get to the story. But first, merch and charity. Uh, take caution with this week's release as it, as it is uh, extremely shocking. New tea based on Suck Subject 105, prototypical mad scientist Nikola Tesla. Very cool portrait of Nikola, uh, surrounded by currents of electricity. What an incredible mind he had. What an incredible weirdo he was. Head on over to badmagicmerch.com and check it out. Wish I could uh, survive on his limited amount of sleep. Uh, another reminder that this month we donated $15,029 to the uh, very sweet, uplifting nonprofit Guide Dogs for the Blind with the help of our Patreon patrons. Also added an additional $1,669 to the scholarship fund. Guide Dogs for the Blind believes in connecting people, dogs, and communities, transforming the lives of individuals with visual impairments. To find out more or to donate, uh, go to guidedogs.com. And now it's topic time. Please be quiet and listen, especially the brand new listeners. Again, just please shut the fuck up. It bothers me that you're here. Can't stress that enough. Uh, No, today we're headed uh, mainly to the brand new country of the United States, a brand new frontier of the late 18th century, the area of present day Kentucky and Tennessee, a wild place back then full of unexplored lands. It was a place for a fresh start and new opportunities, just like the Oregon Territory would be for settlers decades later. And like any lawless frontier land, it was also a place for bandits, murderers like Wiley and McCage Harp to 
take advantage of hardworking, honest people trying to create a better life for themselves and a better future for their families. Before I share the dirty story of their despicable lives in today's timeline, I'll spend most of the first half of this week's episode setting the stage for the crimes they committed. I'll go over the time and place where they took most of their victims' lives, uh, discussing late 18th century American Western expansion. Also share the uh, details of the war that kicked off their bloodlust, the American Revolutionary War, and the uh, events that led up to it, events the Hart brothers lived through. I'll go over why they fought on the side of the British and how a savage style of fighting uh, in the war in their southern portion of the colonies and a hatred of British loyalists following the war helped set them on a course of leading such a savage lifestyle. Uh, all that and also, you know, they were just uh, probably born psychopaths. Let's get to Yihyeon! While frontiersmen were carving communities out of the wilderness, the Harps were making a good effort at slaughtering the meager population. That's a quote from an article in the October 29th, 1972 edition of the Park City Daily News from Bowling Green, Kentucky. Harps operated in what was considered the western frontier during their lifetime, the land beyond the safety of the established colonial communities, unknown lands of the Appalachian Mountains, and even further west. They operated in the area of several present-day states, such as Tennessee, Kentucky, Illinois, and Mississippi. They killed people up and down what was called the Wilderness Road, along the Green River, and what was called the Barrens, and all the way over to the infamous Bandit and River Pirate hideout of Cave in Rock on the Ohio River. They were considered the most feared outlaws out of so many outlaws who preyed on travelers along the Natchez Trace. Today, the Natchez Trace is a roughly 440-mile historic forest trail. Sounds way too fucking long. Passing through three states. I will not be hiking it. It starts in Nashville, Tennessee. Ends, like I mentioned a bit earlier, in Natchez, Mississippi. Small city of about 15,000. 90 miles north of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. The old Natchez Trace was a historic travel corridor used by Native Americans, European settlers, enslavers, and soldiers for many, many years. Local tribes, mainly the Choctaw and Chickasaw, traveled the trace for centuries. And British settlers traveled it for even longer than that. They began using the path back in the 9th century, over a thousand years ago. Right after Christopher Columbus took the pilgrims in his Mayflower pirate ship to settle Alaska back in 1017. Anyone who just believed those last few sentences made their history teachers so fucking sad. Now, the tribes, of course, had been using the trail for centuries before any Europeans ever set foot on it. They created it. They blazed the brush on the trail to create a clear path for their horses. The first recorded European to go through the trace was an unknown Frenchman who traveled it in 1742, and he was uh, not terribly impressed with the trail's maintenance. He wrote about the trail's miserable conditions. I get it. Maybe he's from uh, Paris or somewhere. going to be hard for an old trail cleared by uh, a brush by hand just enough to allow horses to comfortably trot down it through the mud, you know, to compare to the flat, wide, cobblestone streets of a city like Paris, where stones were first laid way back in the 12th century. A little more rugged over on this continent at that time. Uh, By the end of the 18th century, European settlers had begun establishing inns along the trace to serve food and provide housing for the increasing number of travelers heading west to populate more and more of the continent as the original colonies filled up with more and more settlers. This trail always bringing more and more fresh victims was where the Harps would do a a great deal of their senseless and brutal killing. Another area commonly used by the Harps for hunting humans was the Cumberland Gap, a pass that took western-minded settlers across the Cumberland Mountains, a smaller mountain range that's part of the larger range of the Appalachian Mountains. A little town of about 500 people now sits at the Cumberland Gap at the junction of Kentucky, Virginia, and Tennessee. In American colonial history, this notable pass served as the first major passageway to make it through the lower Appalachians. First white settler to uh, cross the gap was a man named Gabriel Arthur. 
who was captured by Shawnee warriors in 1673. Warriors who, according to uh, tales from contemporaries uh, at, at that time, turned him into a skinwalker using some kind of dark sorcery. And he still haunts the forest today, feasting on the occasional Appalachian Trail hiker, but not often, not feasting very often because he's super old and weak and very pathetic. He's not a very good skinwalker now. He's the kind you don't hear about very often, the shitty kind, ones who can't really overpower their victims. We always hear about the powerful monsters, but what about the weak ones, real old ones, the ones not good at their jobs, right? Not everyone's good at their jobs, not even monsters. We always hear about very tough, scary monsters, but they're sad, not scary, bottom shelf, feeble monsters too, and Gabe is now one of them. Gabe mostly appears as a really sickly, very skinny deer man creature with a bunch of liver spots and shit and mangy patches of fur and really fragile, thin antlers. He can't even chase anyone anymore. His deer legs are too emaciated and brittle. He just kind of crawls, you know? You just feel bad for him, crawling through the brush, hoping to drink the blood of a weak, tired hiker who maybe got hammered the night before and passed out on the ground instead of crawling back in their tent. And even if that hiker has tough, you know, like neck skin, Gabe's not going to be able to feast because he doesn't have hardly any fucking skinwalker teeth left. Maybe two, three shitty teeth left at this point. And they have cavities and they're loose in the gums. It breaks my heart. Gabe might not even be around anymore. Honestly, for his sake, I hope he is dead. According to my source in the fever dream where I was showing all this info, he was really close to death when I started doing my research early this week. Or maybe none of that's true. And instead, you can trust what literally all the sources say about Gabriel Arthur. That the Shawnee warriors who captured him, right, showed him mercy and, and let him go. Oh, boy. Uh, hey, Dan. Uh, uh, David Hatcher Childress here. A Time Silk resident cryptozoologist, uh, former University of Montana student. Uh, <laughs> go Grizz. And what you said about the skinwalkers uh, does not line up with my own research. You're projecting the paradigm of human physical limitations onto a, a creature with supernatural powers, which by definition uh, means they're not confined by known abilities or biological constraints like the traditional aging process. Uh, David? Uh, yeah. Uh, Dan? David, I was kidding. That was, no, that was a joke. Oh, oh okay. I wish, I wish you uh, would have made that more clear. Uh, David, like always, just uh, go, go wait outside in the hall. Yeah, okay, that's no problem. Uh, uh, real quick, I, I did notice that my uh, most recent pay stub this week uh, came from Bear Evil Incorporated. And uh, shut the fuck up, David, and get out of here. Oh, uh, yeah, oh, no, that's okay. No need for yelling. I'm going to talk to the uh, HR department. I hadn't seen uh, David in a while. I thought he was, uh, was gone. I thought he was fired, but uh, apparently he's back in the building. Anyway, the Cumberland Gap, the pass, didn't fall into common use for uh, almost another century. Probably too many people getting eaten by Skinwalker Gabe when he was young and virile. Or not enough uh, people were ready to uh, head further west yet. Early Virginia explorer Thomas Walker was perhaps the next European settler to find the pass in 1750. First to properly document it, spread the word around. Quarter of a century later in 1775, famed American frontiersman Daniel Boone blazed a proper trail through the Cumberland Gap known as Wilderness Road after first crossing it over a decade earlier. Trail he would help carve would serve as the pathway to the Western United States for some 300,000 settlers over the next 35 years. Plenty of people again for the harps to hunt and brutalize. Boone's pioneering path led to the establishment of the first settlements in Kentucky, including his namesake, Boonesboro, and to Kentucky's admission to the Union as the 15th state in 1792. Boone first crossed the Cumberland Gap on a hunting trip in 1767. Author and historian Robert M. Coates wrote of Daniel Boone in his 1930 book, the Outlaw Years, The History of the Land Pirates of the Natchez Trace, a book we leaned on heavily as the best source of reliable information on the Bloody Harps. Uh, Coates said of Boone, 
He blazed a history of his passage on the trunks of trees. He scratched his sign on boulders along the way and moved out silently into the wilderness. He blazed fording places at the rivers, felled trees to make raccoon bridges across the creeks. Thousands of other men abandoning the comfortable, prosperous east came groping westward after him. And he also, maybe, beat the shit out of that weak-ass fucking skinwalker Gabe, sending him spiraling into his current pathetic state of existence. Maybe he did. I don't know. I wasn't there. And you weren't either. Especially you, new guy. You know a fucking dick about Daniel Boone. But for real, though, Cumberland Gap was considered the gateway to the west, and settlers came to the mountains in large numbers. The road was long and dangerous, full of outlaws, waiting to take advantage of honest people, isolated from society and the law. Wilderness Road followed Boone's initial trail to the Great Smoky Mountains, down the Watoga, 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 there we go, Watoga, Watoga River. Didn't know that river was a river before this week. Uh, to the juncture within the Clinch Mountains. The path then forked to Knoxville, or north towards the Cumberland Gap, descending into Kentucky. Both forks met up back at Nashville, considered a metropolis then with a thousand inhabitants by the end of the 18th century. My, how times have changed. Thousand people. That was a metropolis for this place and time. Barely qualifies as a town now. Uh, That was a big city on the frontier full of all kinds of hog folk, dog folk, hustling and bustling. A lot less people back then all over, of course. 1790 census, so this is Kentucky's entire population and only 73,077 people. Uh, Kentucky was actually technically a county of sorts belonging to Virginia at that time. And the population of Tennessee, known then as the Southwest Territory, less than half of that at 35,791. 1792, Kentucky's new state legislature, it had just become the 15th state on June 1st of that year, designated money to improve the road, turn it into an actual road of sorts. Ber- uh, Vermont beat Kentucky to become in the 14th state by just a few months. Uh, By 1796, the all-weather wilderness road was officially opened, making wagon and carriage travel much easier. Also had the unintended consequence of making it easier for robbers and murderers, like the Harps, to attack travelers. Author Coates' introductory chapter on the trail explains why settlers wanted to leave behind the cities and relative comfort of their lives in the east and enter the western mountain wilderness. The following is a quote from a man who not only uh, did he originally pass through the Cumberland Gap and uh, Cumberland Gap, excuse me, walk the wilderness road as a, as a, you know, just get a, some some reference from all this. Yeah, he he may have ran with the Hart brothers on many of their debaucherous adventures. We'll cite him frequently this episode, along with Coates, uh, suck first historian. Maybe he lived a long time ago. Maybe he lives now. Maybe he's a uh, fucking couple, couple hundred years old. He's a mysterious character. He's uh, Sylvester Hobard Ichabod Twillpepper. They came by the thousands, all sorts of conditions of men. Hootenannies from the plains of Bluegill, snake packers, hog hustlers, shrimp peddlers from Hemp Hill Swill and Succotash Creek, flute diddlers and groundhog whistlers, maple barters and moonshine martyrs, tonsil twiddlers from Buckeye's Head and dewdrop middlers from Chickasaw Red, Mackenzie's men from the War of Discontent and Ruby's Tavern Girls from the Syracuse Snatch Pit. By water and by land they came, by foot, by hoof, by snowfall sleigh pulled by dwarf and goblin. Through the day and night, they toiled and tribulated, confiscated what they could to survive. Pine tree root and tabernacle grease. They wove a tapestry of settlement out of many things. Snail shell, snail shell shoes. Blackberry bramble britches. Even air banjo strings. Sorry, that was absurd. That was a bunch of gibberish I made up after reading the real account as laid out by author Robert M. Coates, which I'll read in a second. And I thought to do that because this real account sounds a lot like the shit I read to my ears. Uh, fucking old pioneer talk. 
I love it, but I'm often left thinking, uh, what in the hell are they saying? Uh, real quick, before I share the actual account, keep your uh, ears appealed for old Sylvester Hobart Ichabod Twillpepper. I feel like he's not done telling tales today. Not by a damn sight. Let's restart this music. They came by the thousands with all sorts of conditions of men. Mountaineers from the Blue Ridge and Yatkin Valley. Pack peddlers, traders, army men, disgruntled soldiers. The original settlers of Tennessee comprised a large number who'd fought in their evolution. Farm boys, city men, men of all trades. Carpenters, hostlers, mechanics, men embittered, seeking solitude. Proud, fearless men and men with heavy secrets to conceal. By water and by land they came, hammering their way into the wilderness. Pushing on toward the center river, the dreamed of Mississippi that lay like a liquid spine in the wilderness mist. They came pushing on along one fork or the other, and the wilderness swallowed them. Wherever they went, it touched them. Wherever they settled, it surrounded them. Facing the wilderness is dark loneliness, its strange menace. The bigger privations it imposed, and the sudden bountifulness it sometimes afforded. All men changed a little, as if their natures, like their mouths, were fed on the wild fruit it offered. Gradually, as the settlers came pouring into the region, the dangers of the Indians diminished. But now that the very tide of immigration brought a new peril to the wilderness, the river pirates who preyed on the traffic of the river and the land pirates who infested the forest trails, as travel increased, their numbers mounted. As trade grew richer, they became more powerful. On land, they were more fortunate still, for here the wilderness fed them, hid them, inspired them. Its dense cane breaks aided them in ambuscade. They were the terror of the great trails of the Natchez Trace. Hare and the two mad harps, Mason and Mural, one by one they rose to power and had their period of dominion over the wilderness country. They were its creatures, the bitter fruit of the same wild seed that bred the pioneers. They reflected, but in more savage fashion, the same ruthless audacity and fierce implacable energy with this loneliness inspired in their more honest fellows. I mean, for real, though, didn't that actual historical passage about the kind of folks heading west into Tennessee, Kentucky sound pretty similar to the bullshit I made up? Uh, let's talk about the Revolutionary War a bit now. The Hart brothers seem to get their first taste for violence during this war and will use the backdrop of this war to do a lot of horrible shit. The Harps lived during the American Revolution and the chaotic post-war period that followed when the U.S. was trying to establish its government and first set of laws. The Harps were the children of Scottish immigrants, and like many of their fellow immigrants, they were loyal to the British crown. During the war, an estimated 15 to 20 percent of the population in America were loyalists. Most loyalists were office holders serving the British crown, clergymen, Quakers, pacifists, landowners, or wealthy merchants. Loyalists never came together as a group to serve the army, but a lot of different individuals joined the British army or formed guerrilla militia units. New York alone furnished a total of around 23,000 loyalist soldiers during the war. Highland Scots who had immigrated to America overwhelmingly favored the king over the revolutionary cause. Surprising, right? Was for me. For a nation that had won its independence from England in the early 14th century and had fought numerous wars to protect this independence, such loyalty probably seems bizarre to many of us today. Scotland has had a long history of engagement with England on much more complex levels than just a, a resistance to English oppression we often hear about, especially in pop culture, right? A resistance portrayed, for example, in uh, films like Mel Gibson's Braveheart. Freedom! But around the time the Harps immigrated to America, McCage and Wiley Harps' fathers, uh, both born in Scotland, even some of the most patriotic Scots were looking to England for guidance. Scotland in the late 17th century was compared to England underdeveloped. Uh, and often uh, a backward nation. Looking south, most Scots saw a centralized state, relative stability, Newtonian science, political philosophers, 
greater enfranchisement, and after 1689, a constitutional circumscribed monarchy. The desire to be a part of all this overall was strong, and in 1707, Scottish parliamentarians, realizing that the nation's wealth could not permit her to compete in colonial ventures on the European stage against England, signed the Treaty of Union, which unified the parliaments of Scotland and England. This Treaty of Union opened up English markets to Scottish traders who now made a shitload of money. Scotland was largely spared the same levels of taxation seen in England, and as a result, many Scots economically benefited greatly from the Union. Under the Navigation Acts, a series of laws passed by the British Parliament that imposed restrictions on colonial trade, which so frustrated American traders, Scots were permitted to carry on trade with British colonies without paying the tariffs associated with foreign states. The biggest beneficiary was Glasgow, which overtook centers like London and Liverpool to become Britain's leading tobacco port by the 1770s. So basically, at the time of the uh, American Revolution, Scotland's relationship with the British crown was the best it had ever been. They were the crown's golden child. And when the American colonists decided to revolt against the motherland, uh, Scottish immigrants were not too fucking happy about it. They saw the colonists as ruining what was a very good new thing for them. But the Americans didn't just revolt out of nowhere, of course. The American Revolution was caused largely by the aftermath of another war. The Seven Years' War, a.k.a. the French and Indian War, that lasted from 1754 to 1763. This war was, I know those aren't, I know those aren't seven uh, years there. Uh, this war was a part of an ongoing imperial global struggle between Britain and France, each country seeking to expand their spheres of influence in the New World and also elsewhere just around the globe. I go into all this in a lot more depth back in episode 147 on the Revolutionary War. Uh, originally released back on July 8th, 2019. Going to give a much more summarized synopsis here now. During the Seven Years' War, the French and their Native American allies fought against the British, American colonists, and the Iroquois Confederacy of Upstate New York and Northern Pennsylvania. By 1753, Great Britain controlled the 13 original colonies on the East Coast. Beyond that lay New France, large colonies stretching from Louisiana through the Mississippi Valley and Great Lakes all the way to Canada. But the border between Britain and France wasn't clearly defined, and that haziness would, of course, lead to conflict as settlers, fur traders, etc., from both you know, sides looked to settle contested lands. In the early 1750s, France expanded into the Ohio River Valley, and that expansion brought them directly into conflict with British colonists also expanding into the valley, who considered that land to belong to them. In 1754, the French built Fort Duquesne, where the Allegheny and, oh boy, uh, Monongala, Monongahela, there we go, Allegheny and Monongahela rivers joined to form the Ohio River. This was a strategic location that the British wanted and felt was rightfully theirs. From 1754 to 1755, the French won a series of battles against General George Washington. Yes, that George Washington and Governor William Shirley of Massachusetts. <laughs> yes, that William Shirley. Uh, kidding a bit with emphasis on that second one. Does anyone outside of a few history buffs have a fucking clue who William Shirley was? You could have told me just about any name for the governor of Massachusetts that time and I would have just nodded along. Governor Ronald McDonald. All right, all right, maybe that's where that name came from. Governor Dewey Teabagger. Huh, unfortunate name, but funny, carry on. Anyway, when news of Washington's failure reached British Prime Minister Thomas Pelham Holes, he called for retaliation. Pelham Holes' enemies in the cabinet then made the news of retaliation public, which alerted the French. Good job, dickweeds. Now Britain forced to declare war. In 1755, Governor Shirley expelled hundreds of French settlers in Acadia, those Cajun swamp folk ancestors we spoke of in the Ronnie Joe Fragile Butthole episode out of Nova Scotia and off to other British colonies. The British then sent General Edward Braddock to the colonies to command their forces, and Braddock alienated uh, Native allies, and the colonial leaders refused to cooperate with him. Fucking Braddock, not well liked. 
On July 13th, 1755, the unpopular Braddock died in an ambush and the war, uh, you know, fell into a stalemate for a few years in North America. But in 1756, the French captured Menorca in the Mediterranean, a little island taken from the Spanish by the British in 1708. 1757, the war having started up again overseas, the British now defeat the French in India. Meanwhile, back in North America, British commander Lord London or Lord Loudon failed in several key battles against the French and their native allies in Nova Scotia. 1757, future prime minister, current chief executive of the British Treasury, William Pitt, borrowed a large amount of money to finance the war. He paid Prussian mercenaries to fight on the European front and reimbursed the colonial settlers to provide volunteer soldiers. In July of 1757, the British won a significant battle at Louisbourg. A month later, they stole a French fort. In November of 1758, British General John Forbes captured Fort Duquesne, renamed it Fort Pitt. The British then took Quebec. In September of 1759, Montreal also fell to the British in September of 1760. The French now lost their last major city in Canada. The French government now attempts to start peace negotiations, but Prime Minister William Pitt wanted the French to cede Canada, as well as the uh, as other as well as excuse me other commercial concessions. There we go. And the peace negotiations failed. And then King Charles III of Spain offers to aid his cousin uh, French King Louis the Fifteenth in the war, and they join forces. Obviously, as I'm sure many of you uh, history buffs can recall, as a tag team wrestling duo. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Tonight in the Baltimore Colonial Civic Center Auditorium, we have a true Royal Rumble. King Chuck and King Louie take their dainty little blue blood soft ass doll hands that have never known a single minute of manly work into the cage against combat veteran George Dollar Dollar Bill, y'all Washington, and some other wig sporting waistcoat and stocking wearing motherfuckers like John Suck My Yankee Hancock. Four men fighting for the right to impose their version of Manifest Destiny. We'll sell you the whole seat, but you'll only need the edge. For real though. Uh, King Charles III of Spain offers to aid his cousin, French King Louis XV in the war. And they formed the Family Compact on August 15, 1761. Then Spain announces that they will fuck Britain's shit up if the war doesn't end before May 1st, 1762. That move was meant to subdue Britain into ending the war, but not so much. Instead, the British declare war on Spain in Janu- on January 4th, 1762. Backfire. For the rest of the war, Britain focuses on capturing both French and Spanish land in other parts of the world. They take the French Caribbean islands, Cuba, the Philippines. They force their foes to surrender rather than be annihilated. In February of 1763, France, Britain, Spain all signed the Treaty of Paris to end this war. The British get Canada from France and Florida from Spain. France keeps the Sugar Islands and the West Indies. Spain ends up with Louisiana and Cuba. And now the Mississippi Valley, North America, is open for British expansion. Britain is won. So how did that all help lead to the Revolutionary War? It didn't. I have no idea why we just went over any of that. Sometimes I just uh, say pointless shit because I like the sound of my own voice. No, it did help lead to the uh, Revolutionary War. Here's how. England borrowed from British and Dutch banks to finance the war, which doubled their national debt. And King George III argued that since the war benefited the colonists so much, they should, you know, fucking pay for it. And I have to admit, there is some logic to that argument. Uh, George also decided to send army units to the colonies to protect the new territory, which required even more money. And he wanted the colonists to pay for that as well, since the protection was for them. Also, some logic there. But many many colonists did not see this logic. They were pissed. They probably ran around with powdered wigs all askew because they didn't, I don't know, put them on right. They were angry and frustrated. Disputes over frontier policy and paying steep post-war taxes led to colonial discontent and planted the seeds for the American Revolutionary War. Taxes. Always got to be careful with taxes. 
Not enough taxes and the government can't properly manage the nation and provide necessary services like law enforcement, transportation, infrastructure, public education, the military to protect citizens from foreign invasion, etc. But too much taxes and the citizens will eventually revolt and overthrow the government. Uh, in addition to not caring for new taxes, Americans were also unhappy because they resented the increased authority Britain was imposing with a larger troop presence. They've been left alone for years before the war and uh, allowed to establish local governments. But now the army is interfering with their normal routines. So what taxes specifically pissed them off the most? Uh, there were many. Here are some of the biggest. In 1765, British Parliament passed the Stamp Act, which was the first internal tax directly levied on Americans to pay for the increased troop presence. It required that many, uh, excuse me, that many, yeah, printed materials in the colonies had to be produced on stamped paper produced in London, carrying an embossed revenue stamp. Uh, printed materials included legal documents, magazines, playing cards, newspapers, many other types of paper used throughout the colonies had to be paid in British currency, not colonial paper money. And this tax was met with anger. And this tax, legitimately super annoying. This is fucked up, making Americans buy British paper. It's not like they had Amazon Prime back then. They were making Americans wait on paper. You know, potentially they had to be sailed across the Atlantic Ocean instead of just letting them make their own. A little short-sighted seeming uh, to uh, not understand how upsetting this was going to be. Then the Townshend Acts of 1767 pissed colonists off further. These were taxes on glass, lead, paint, paper, and tea to help pay the expenses involved in governing the American colonies. The Tea Act of 1773 seemed to be the tax straw that broke the colonists back. This tax granted the British East India Company uh, tea, uh, uh, tea, wait, a monopoly on tea sales. There we go. British East India Tea Company. Uh, a monopoly on tea sales in the American colonies in an effort to save the struggling company. Also fucked up, not letting colonists grow their own tea. Instead of making them buy from a British company at a much higher price. Uh, to me, this is kind of like uh, forcing Americans to buy big pharma products to uh, treat depression if they need medicine instead of letting them, I don't know, grow their own magic mushrooms, proven to also be effective in treating major depressive episodes. Psilocybin mushrooms are uh, exponentially cheaper with fewer side effects. Or it's like the American government allowing big pharma to sell citizens dangerous, addictive, and expensive opioids to treat pain, but not allowing med uh, medicinal marijuana in many states, uh, like my state of Idaho, to also treat pain. So that's cool. Are we actually more free? Because we fought against the British or is the same old bullshit the colonists fought against in the Revolutionary War still going on today, but now our masters live on this side of the Atlantic. Anyway, uh, American colonists lacked representatives in parliament, which made them even more pissed off. Colonists felt like they didn't have the same rights as citizens in Britain. They didn't have a voice in deciding what taxes should be imposed upon them. That whole taxation without representation situation. Mobs began to attack loyalist politicians in 1765. Large crowds in Boston attacked Andrew Oliver and Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson. They broke into Hutchinson's mansion, ransacked the place, stole money, jewelry, destroyed all kinds of property. And incidents of colonial violence began to occur on a somewhat regular basis, such as the 1770 Boston Massacre, when a group of nine British soldiers shot five people out of a rioting crowd of three or four hundred who were abusing them verbally and starting to throw shit at them. There was a December 1773 Boston Tea Party when protesters boarded ships belonging to the British East India Company and threw chests of tea into the ocean. I've heard of it. Soldiers soon enforced martial law all over the colonies in response, which further increased tension between the colonies and the crown. Uh, British Parliament passed a coercive acts beginning in March of 1774 as punishment for rebellions in Boston. In response, colonial delegates forming the First Continental Congress meet in Philadelphia on September or in September 1774 to voice their grievances against the crown. They denounced taxation without representation and the maintenance of the army without their consent. They declare their rights to life, liberty, property, assembly, and trial by jury. A revolution is brewing. 
Word of this makes it back to the British crown. And on April 18th, 1775, British soldiers march into Concord, Massachusetts to seize the colonists' arms to prevent an uprising. But too late, motherfuckers. Very next day, uh, the colonial forces and British forces fight in the battles of Lexington and Concord, officially starting the Revolutionary War. The Second Continental Congress now quickly meets in Philadelphia, votes to form an army. They elect General George Washington as commander-in-chief. Why was he chosen? Well, if you forgot, he had the heaviest balls. For centuries, military leaders around the globe were chosen only based on whose balls were the heaviest back when the world made sense. George had a little over 16 pounds of nuts, not counting dick, just nuts. There was no question he should lead. God had clearly chosen him to lead men with smaller balls, often much smaller, into battle. No, the other guys just felt like George was a great military leader and would do the best job. How boring. Uh, the colonial and British armies now meet again in the Battle of Bunker Hill, uh, June 17th, 1775, considered the first major battle of the war. The British win this battle, but also took over twice the casualties as the Americans, and that inspired the early patriots to keep fighting. A bunch of other battles are then fought after this. Both sides win, lose, and shit. The Americans win enough to feel good enough about their future to form the Continental Congress and sign the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776. Document the chains of nation's history forever. Then in 1777, the Continental Army defeats the British at the Battle of Saratoga. The French join the war in 1778. British commanders decide to launch a campaign in the South where the Harps lived. On the southern front of the war, fighting continued guerrilla style far more savage and personal than anything fought in the North. And the Harps are believed to have engaged in many of these savage acts. There was a harsh atmosphere of violence in the South as gangs of revolutionaries and loyalists attacked one another, even towards the war's end while peace negotiations were going on. Even after the war was over, the loyalists were concerned about protecting themselves and felt like they had to fight back. Loyalists captured in battle were often treated as traitors and usually executed. The war down south was brutal. In one of many incidents, loyalist forces murdered a pregnant woman while she slept. Above her canopy, they wrote in her own blood, thou shalt never give birth to a rebel. In her own blood. Holy shit. In another incident, loyalist commander Thomas Brown ordered the hanging of 13 rebels in his stairwell. He wanted to watch him die while he laid in bed and recovered from some battlefield injuries. So that's what he did. That's uh, it's pretty macabre. Finally, in October of 1781, the war virtually comes to an end when General Cornwallis is surrounded and forced to surrender the British position at Yorktown, Virginia. Two years later, the Treaty of Paris makes it official. America is independent. Uh, during and after the war, approximately 100,000 loyalists will flee to Canada, an estimated 3 to 4% of the population. Most of the loyalists settle in Nova Scotia. The British government also uh, helps black loyalists resettle in Canada since they were promised emancipation for fighting in the war. About 3,500 black veterans will settle in New Brunswick. States pass laws forbidding loyalists from holding office, disenfranchising them, and confiscating or heavily taxing their property. Founding fathers Benjamin Franklin and John Jay were adamant that loyalists should be punished severely after the war. Loyalist soldiers were treated as, again, treasonous citizens, punished in court. Loyalists who fled the country prohibited from returning Despite guarantees and peace treaties, loyalist hatred would not die down until after 1788, when the new American government formed after the ratification of the American Constitution. Remaining state laws against loyalists wouldn't be fully repealed until after the War of 1812. Uh, the Bloody Harps would be dead by then. While they lived, these uh, vicious loyalist outlaws lived as despised men for most of their uh, lives. They grew up witnessing so much violence and hatred between loyalists and patriots. They saw men get away with evil, lawless behavior, and it seems like they wanted to join in. And take things even further in that direction. Instead of being repulsed, it seems like they might have been inspired. So let's dive into a timeline now of their shitty lives from beginning to end. And go over some Revolutionary War era history none of us 
were ever taught in school. Right after today's mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs caused me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter 
Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Now let's dive into this insanity. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a TIMESUCK timeline. Uh, quick note before I begin sharing all this timeline info. If you if you read five sources on the harps, especially the several books written about them, you're going to get five different versions of their story, often with different dates, sometimes wildly different dates, and very different spins on their deeds and characters. A lot of speculation presented as fact by numerous sources. Uh, putting this all together, it soon became very apparent that no one knows for sure what these two shitheads actually did for much of their lives. As is often the case when we've covered subjects from the American Wild West and this frontier tale, certainly Wild West adjacent, even though it all happened uh, nearly a century before most uh, Wild West legends were made. There were a lot of tall tales being told at this time about figures like the Harps. Not a lot of serious historical journalism being done. People that lived in places like where the Harps were killing people weren't generally the uh, scholarly type. They tended to be uh, a lot more interested in living until the next day uh, than they were in recording that day's history. More interested in making sure they knew how to live off the land instead of learning how to read and write and such. And when folks did write shit down during this era, in this area, it was almost never long graphic narratives about the dirty deeds of the likes of the Harp Brothers. Most of the people who were the, uh, you know, most literate back then were very godly folk. They weren't writing about true crime. That would have been seen as uh, terribly distasteful at best, very sinful, legally uh, obscene at worst. So I just wanted to say that up top. And I want to add that I'm not going to give a lot of multiple dates for events, you know, this source to that. There's just too many inconsistencies that'll ruin the story. Uh, on each event, I just pick the date that seems to me to be the most agreed upon and then moved on. So if the dates I give don't line up with other dates you've read about or heard about, uh, you know, regarding the same story, that's why. And if that bothers you, well, then I guess we can talk more about it. When I show up in your fucking bedroom in the middle of the night, wearing a hockey mask and carrying a very big, sharp machete. That's how I like to handle disagreements with people. Because it's fucking funny to me. <laughs> it's funny to me to do that. And if it's not funny to you, then I guess I'll fucking slash your fucking head off your neck. All right, I'm glad that's settled now. I feel calm. I can begin. In the late 1750s, uh, two of the most wicked men in early American history were born. Roy Disney and Pat Sajak. Mm. <laughs> or McCaja and Wiley Harp. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> McCaja Harp was born in 1748. Uh, Wiley Harp born in 1750. McCaja, most likely born in Scotland shortly before his family crossed the Atlantic, while Wiley, likely born in Orange County, North Carolina, where the two would grow up. The Harps weren't really named McCaja and Wiley. They weren't brothers. They were first cousins. Their dads were brothers. McCaja Harp's real name was Joshua, born to parents John Harp and Mrs. Harp, no name given to her in sources. If he had any siblings, and he likely had so many uh, not listed in sources, 
Also, at first I thought that the uh, name Makajo is such a weird name for Joshua to pick. I'm like, I've never heard of that name before. But looking into it, while not common in the last 100 years, uh, pretty popular in America for its first uh, few centuries. There's a neighborhood in Plymouth, Massachusetts called Makaja Heights, a pond near it called Makaja Pond, a little un- unincorporated community in West Virginia called Makaja. It's actually a misspelling uh, of the boys uh, of a boy's name of Hebrew origin, meaning who is like God. Well, not Makaja Harp. I hope not. If Makaja Harp represents God, we are fucked. Uh, Wiley Harp, real name William, not a huge change there, uh, born to parents William Harp and Mrs. Harp, no name given to her in sources either really kind of illustrates women's cultural value compared to men back then. Might as well have listed uh, their wives' names as of John and of William. Somewhere between 1760 and 1763, brothers John and William Harp leave the west coast of Scotland with their wives, settle in Orange County, North Carolina. I know that date doesn't match up with the birth dates I listed earlier, but uh, again, these dates are all over the place. Time range, uh, rough estimate given by historians. Due to the politically tense atmosphere of the time, historians believe the... These folks changed their names from Harper to Harp to gain favor with American neighbors. That is true. How fucking ridiculous that one letter would make that much of a difference. Did you say your name was Harper? Are you fucking kidding me, you Scottish scum? What Harper? No, it's Harp. No dirty R. It's clearly an English name, not a Scottish name. Wait a minute. How come you have a thick Scottish accent? Uh, the accent situation makes this even more ridiculous to me. Like, even if, like, the one letter did change your name from Scottish to English, uh, although both names historically can be either Scottish, English, or even Irish, but but if the one letter changed the origin, you would still sound super Scottish, right? The same amount Scottish. Well, I don't know. Whatever the reason their name changed, these uh, Harp cousin dipshits grew up together and they were best friends. And they supposedly considered themselves brothers. Early in their adolescence, they started calling themselves Big Harp and Little Harp, referring to their obvious size difference. Mikaja was a big, big dude. One modern biographer taking into account some old descriptions of them. Says uh, that Mikaja was over six feet tall as an adult, uh, weighed over 200 pounds, which was a massive dude in those days and very muscular, extremely strong, uh, dark curly hair, widely described as being considerably thinner, quite a bit shorter and listed as having unruly red hair. They were both easily recognizable figures, especially when they showed up together. And it seems like Wiley, uh, Excuse me, it seems Wiley, at least, uh, must have been pretty ugly. I mean, no man is described as having unruly red hair <laughs> and as being handsome. Like, at least 99 times out of 100, they're not, especially not in those frontier times. If you do an image search for these two, illustrations of them are never flattering. They look like a couple motherfuckers from a slasher flick or a zombie movie, right? A couple backwoods, inbred Scottish savages, big old lumpy heads, beady eyes, super high foreheads. And uh, honestly, they look a lot like myself. They look a lot like me with smaller eyes and a little bit bigger foreheads and longer hair, okay? I have a lot of Scottish blood and I feel like I have pretty Scottish features and overall I do accept that we're not the most attractive people. These two Frontier Days hillbillies had my Frankenstein head but not my Scandinavian eyes. In drawings, they had little rat eyes and, you know, they didn't have access to modern beauty products like scissors and face lotion and soap. So imagine me with more hair, curlier hair, big bushy unkept beard, a little bit uglier. A lot dirtier, tinier eyes. And you probably have a pretty good uh, depiction of Big Harp. And then reimagine me as being starved and shrunk quite a bit. And a decent amount uglier. With a bunch of bozo, uncombed clown hair. And you get Little Harp. Kind of like a, like a smaller groundskeeper Willie from The Simpsons. Uh, according to a couple different sources, uh, uh, Wiley 
almost called him Willie there, uh, was the brains of these two, uh, uh, like a two-man operation, while McCage was the muscle. Both men loved violence. In the spring of 1775, the Harp Bros left North Carolina for Virginia. McCage, uh, yeah, anyway, these uh, they, they rode off to find jobs as uh, slave overseers, perfect occupation for a couple of sadists. Uh, but then American Revolution, the American Revolution, excuse me, interrupted those plans. The Harps, as I mentioned up top, were loyalists who sided with the British. Most sources don't seem to think they actually really gave a shit about which side they fought on. Fighting for the British just gave them the most chances in their area to burn farms, steal people's shit, rape vulnerable women, uh, do some wanton murder. And they did a lot of all that. Multiple sources uh, referred to them being a part of a Tory rape gang. I had to stop when I came across that phrase and look further into it. Like I was like, were Tory rape gangs actually a real thing? Uh, yeah, yeah, sadly they were. Uh, rarely talked about when the horrors of the Revolutionary War are discussed, but they absolutely were. Sadly, war and rape have always gone hand in hand. Uh, more and more reports coming out of uh, you know Ukraine almost every day now. Many reports of Ukrainian women being raped by occupying Russian soldiers. And back in the Revolutionary War, there were many reports. Many eyewitness accounts of bands of Tories, what the loyalists were often called, going full plunder on those fighting against the crown in America. Nathaniel Green, famed major general of the Continental Army in the American Revolutionary War, uh, George Washington's most trusted general, in fact, would use the term ravished, as almost everyone did back then when he was referring to people getting raped. And, uh, and he wrote to Governor Nicholas Cook of Rhode Island on December 21st, 1776, about what he saw in New Jersey when the British commander-in-chief William Howe and his men and many Tories tore through the area. He wrote, men slaughtered, women ravished, houses plundered. Little girls, not yet 10, ravished. Mothers and daughters ravished in presence of husbands and sons who were obliged to be spectators to their brutal conduct. Howe's army ravages, or Howe's army's ravages exceeded all description. And there are tons of additional historical accounts much like that one. But this aspect of the war rarely talked about by historians. Uh, and it wasn't just the Tories doing the raping either. Sexual violence towards women was all too common during the American Revolutionary War on both sides. British soldiers often raped the women living on the property they destroyed. When American soldiers fighting for General Washington entered communities full of loyalists, same shit went down. Tory women and girls raped by those fighting for or adjacent to the Continental Army. Countless incidents of rape and sexual violence during the war. And it seems like the uh, bloody harps, they uh, broke away from the actual fighting with the British Army during the war to run around as part of this rape gang. Some group uh, you know, of pieces of shit taking advantage of the chaos of the war to get away with being sexual predators. Around this time, Wiley Harp attempted to rape young Susan Wood in North Carolina, but Continental Army Captain James Wood, listed as her father in most sources, shot and wounded him. Uh, unfortunately, he was able to scramble away and survive the gunshot. An early 1800s interview with James Wood confirms all this. Wood confirmed that the Harp brothers joined a band of men loyal to the British crown. This group really just wanted to exploit a legal vacuum uh, created by the war. Right? They just wanted to rape and pillage around the countryside. And according to Wood, Wiley had already raped at least three teenage girls before Wood stopped him from raping his daughter, Susan. And in some sources, uh, Wiley uh, not done with Susan after this, not by a long shot. 1778, there are reports that the Harps were still fighting in battles alongside the British Army along the North and South Carolina borders. Most reports their battle sightings came from Frank Wood, son of Continental Army Captain James Wood. Frank would be interviewed by mid-19th century historian T. Marshall Smith. Many years later, for his book, published in 1855, Legends of the War of Independence and of the Earlier Settlements in the West. Frank told Smith that he personally saw Wiley fight in three battles. He said, on three occasions I saw him and twice we met in battle. He was, as you know, belonging to Lieutenant Tarleton's command, and I went with General Morgan. At the Battle of Cowpens I saw him, and I'm sure he saw me. 
but he managed to keep out of my way till we took 100 prisoners to the number of 500 red British and Tor- red British and Tories. But again, he got off with the retreat of Tarleton. On October 7th, 1780, the Harps uh, and also their fathers fought in the Battle of King's Mountain, one of the few major battles of the war waged entirely between fellow countrymen, Patriot militia versus Tory militia. The Patriots won in the lopsided victory, but the Harps managed to escape with their lives. After King's Mountain, Wiley and McCaja returned to Orange County with their dads. And then around uh, shortly after they got back, by 1779 at the latest, while the exact death date is unknown, a vigilante group of Patriots murdered the Harp brothers' parents. Their fathers and mothers allegedly tortured, hanged for treason for their crimes of supporting the British crown. I'm sure that just further fueled the Harp brothers' violent ways. They were already raping Patriots' wives, mothers, and daughters. And while sources never get specific, they allude to a lot of Harps, uh, a lot of Harp killing, excuse me, uh, during the war, probably killing a lot of the men that stood between them and the women they wanted to rape. And now these men have revenge to further motivate them to do more killing and raping. McCage and Wiley are orphaned now, no longer tied to Orange County, North Carolina. They begin to head west, bring their violent ways towards Kentucky and elsewhere. Illinois historian John Musgrave told the Scotsman for an article about the Harps, this devastating personal tragedy would leave the orphaned Harps dangerously embittered with the world and set them down a path of fortuitous butchery and depravity. I think they realized early on they were not part of the elect and decided if they were going to hell, they might as well make a grand entrance. The viciousness of all but the civil, the viciousness of the all but civil war in the Carolinas during the American Revolution didn't help and certainly led them away to the wilderness and the less than civilized norms they lived out over the next couple decades. Also, war still not over. November 20th, 1780, the Harps serve in the Tory militia under the command of Lieutenant Colonel, uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Tarleton's British Legion at the Battle of Black Sox, excuse me, Black Stocks, as Frank Wood, son of Continental Army Captain James Wood, mentioned earlier. And the Harps also served in the Battle of Cowpens on January 17th, 1781, as Wood stated. Then in early 1781, the Harps abandoned the British Army and joined up with the group of Cherokee, uh, start raiding settlements in North Carolina and Tennessee. Probably uh, more raping, probably some more uh, murder. This band of Cherokees taught the Harps how to use the tomahawk, and that would be uh, one of their favorite weapons, if not their favorite weapon, later in life, especially for Macaja, for Big Harp. You do a lot of fucking tomahawking. Uh, on April 2nd, 1781, the Bloody Harps spotted fighting alongside 400 Cherokee warriors during the uh, Attack on Bluff Station at Fort Nashboro, now Nashville, known as the Battle of the Bluff. This group nearly destroyed Fort Nashboro, luring most of the men stationed there out of the fort, then cutting them off from retreating back into the fort. A small band of men who remained inside and the few able to make it back held the fort. The fort's women helping to save them, apparently by letting a bunch of dogs, trained as guard dogs, out to join in the fray. Praise Mojangles! Uh, during the fight, many of the Cherokee left the battlefield with horses they'd stolen before it was over. Had they uh, stayed, they might have destroyed the fort. Colonel James Robertson, who fought in this fight, was interviewed about it and said, thank God for giving the Indians a love for horses as it saved the lives of many of our men and the grit of these dogs. Their fierce attacks on the Indians caused them to run from the battle. I dare not say what may have happened had they not been trained to warn us of danger and attack and repel the Indians that did attack us. I don't think I've ever heard about a fucking frontier battle where dogs played such an important role. Uh, One of their victims injured in this battle was James Leeper. Leeper was possibly related to John Leeper a member of the posse that will later kill McCaja in dramatic fashion in 1799. Leeper and McCaja allegedly hated each other for years prior to John helping kill McCaja for some unknown reason. Well, maybe their hatred began at this battle. June of 1781, McCaja and Wiley decide to get some revenge on Captain James Wood, the man who shot Wiley Harp as he attempted to rape his daughter Susan. 
men who already uh, wanted to enact more revenge on them, I'd guess. The Bloody Harps now kidnap Susan. Uh, and they kidnap a young woman named Maria Davidson as well. These women are then forced to become the Harps' wives, but in most sources, sex slaves would be a more apt description for the role they'll play. According to most sources, Maria and Susan are sexually, physically, and emotionally abused by the Harps for years after this. Susan forced to become McCage's wife. Maria forced to become Wiley's. Susan and Maria pose as sisters while they're traveling together. Susan was older and described one 19th century account in rather uh, unflattering terms. They didn't pull any punches back then. She described as, quote, rather tall, raw-boned, dark hair and eyes, and rather ugly. All right. Maria was blonde, blue-eyed, gay-tempered, a perfect contrast with her sister. Also, allegedly, Maria was basically shared by the Hart brothers. Susan may have been as well. This is all true. How fucking savage. Imagine some dude tries to rape you. Your dad shoots that motherfucker. He manages to scramble away. And then around five years later, shows back up and kidnaps you. Turns you into a sex slave. My God. Also, how badly did James Wood now want to kill this guy? Uh, Early on after they were kidnapped, a man named Moses Doss expressed concern for those battered women, tried to help them, and the Harps killed him before he could do so. Harps took their wives far away from their homes, decided to settle in the Cherokee Chickamauga village of Nickajack. Located near Chattanooga, Tennessee. They settled with the same Cherokees they've been fighting alongside previously. They'll stay in this village for the next 12 years, doing God knows what sort of dirty deeds. According to that author and historian Robert Coates, this small village was basically populated by a band of outlaws who raided and plundered and murdered who knows how many early settlers in the area and raped who knows how many women. Susan and Maria get pregnant while living in this village. And McKay and Wiley, according to several accounts, killed her babies soon after the mothers give birth to them. If half of this shit is true, these guys are ridiculously evil. There's so many things coming up. Uh, They make Hollywood Western bad guys, right? Like the Cowboys gang and the Tombstone movie look like fantastic citizens. Ike Clanton, Johnny Ringo, those dudes way more civilized than the Bloody Harps. Picture the worst bad guy in some outlaw, you know, uh, gang and, and some Western movie. And that guy would be disgusted by the deeds of the Harps. On October 19th, 1781, the British surrender at Yorktown. This is when the British really lose the Revolutionary War, but sporadic fighting will continue for over another year, mostly amongst militias, especially in frontier lands. Chickamauga and Cherokee continue to raid and attack American patriots during uh, Britain's peace negotiations with Americans, and the Harps continue to raid and attack right along with them. On August 19, 1782, the Harps accompanied a Cherokee war party with the support of the British to the Battle of Blue Licks in Kentucky. On a hill next to the Licking River in what is now Robertson County, Kentucky, then Fayette County, Virginia, a force of about 50 loyalists, along with 300 indigenous warriors, ambush and route 182 Kentucky militiamen. It was the last victory of the war for the loyalists and native warriors that fought for them, a war that was already over, but bands of loyalists in the western frontierlands just uh, had not accepted that yet. Between 1788 and 1793, the Harps join up with some Cherokee in a series of attacks on Bledsoe Station, also known as Bledsoe's Fort, an 18th century fortified frontier settlement located in what is now uh, Castalian Springs, Tennessee. Uh, in September of 1794, some American settlers attack Nickajack Village in retaliation for years of previous attacks coming out of that village. The Harps learned about this attack beforehand and allegedly without informing their Cherokee friends who they've been living with for a, you know, for a dozen years, they flee the village and Nickajack is destroyed. Not very loyal to their longtime buddies. No, no honor amongst these thieves. The Harps and their wives now set up a new camp somewhere in the Tennessee wilderness, lived there for approximately nine months. McCage and Wiley passed the time robbing local Tennessee villages and likely doing a bit more murdering and raping. The Harps then wander around Tennessee for a few years. The records uh, of exactly where they went do not exist. 
We do know they were still in Tennessee as of 1795. And by the spring of 1797, that they had built a cabin near Beavers Creek in Knoxville. Their presence here is verified by a record of them being charged with murdering a man accused uh, who accused them of stealing livestock. This man was found dead in the Tennessee River. His insides had been cut out, replaced with rocks, and he'd been sunk to the bottom of the river. But he floated back up. This will not be the last time a harp, uh, you know, a harp victim's body will be found in this state. In April of 1797, we finally arrive at a pretty detailed violent harp encounter. Most likely while on the way to Beaver's Creek, the Harps encounter William Lambeth, young Methodist preacher traveling along the wilderness road. And old Billy ran into a man pointing a rifle at him. Stand where you be, the man shouted at him. The stranger was tall and broad, his skin described as dried and lifeless, his, an- his eyes animal-like. He wore buckskin breeches and a leather shirt. It was Big Harp. And then another smaller man came out of the trees wearing super big shoes, bright red hair, and playing a traveling calliope. <laughs> hey, Billy! I hope you're running to empty those pockets and loosen that butthole. <laughs> it's me, Little Harp. And if I ain't gonna do some murdering, I'm at least gonna do some raping and pillaging. <laughs> or, according to historical record, Little Harp just walked out of the trees and, and didn't say any of that and was, wasn't dressed like a clown. God, I hope I always find that stupid fucking circus calliope track funny. It kills me every time I remember it and decided to add it to an episode. I also really like imagining uh, a traveling calliope, which is not a thing I don't think. Anyway, Big Harp now yells at Billy, get down from that hoss. That's how it's written. Both men proceed to then steal Billy Lambeth's horse, his pistol, and all the silver in his pockets. Lambeth begs them to not leave him in the forest with nothing, but they ignore him. Before they leave, Billy spots two ragged and unkempt women hiding in the forest. The men flee into the forest with their uh, women, allegedly shouting, we are the hops, as they did so. Weird for them to yell that. At the end, right? I mean, uh, why advertise your crimes like that? I guess if you truly wanted notoriety, you would do so. Not many muggers doing that today, I, I imagine. Not if they want to get away with more than like one or two muggings. It'd be pretty weird, right? Someone jacks you for your shit. <laughs> As they walk away, I'm Dan Cummins. Let it be known. Dan Cummins has stolen your silver. Uh, Lambeth, one of the few survivors of an encounter with the Harps. Uh, Robert Coates wrote, all their actions had been erratic, as if half-controlled. They had been like men throbbing with a strange fury. They had been like madmen, Lambeth, pondering, trudged on. Harps reached Knoxville shortly after this. Coates wrote, the young town of Knoxville lay at the confluence of the Holston and the French Broad Rivers on the south branch of the Wilderness Road. It marked the Overland Gateway to the west. It was wild, tumultuous, booming. Half its population changed overnight as the immigrants entered, stopped for supplies, and plunged westward again. The other half thrived on the trade thus fostered. When the Harps arrived at Beaver Creek, a few members of the community there helped them build their cabin. This was a tradition at the time. Cabin railings turned into social outings. The men worked on the house while the women quilted, made beds, worked on sewing. Talked about being shared by the Harp brothers. Uh, at the end, there was a big dance, kind of like an Amish barn raising. It was here that strange plot twist. Wiley Harp falls in love with a woman named Sarah Rice, daughter of Minister John Rice. That's what the sources say. This guy tried the born again route for a bit, attempt to uh, to walk the straight and narrow, right? Get right with God, apologize to uh, Jesus for all the for all the rapes. I don't know. That's what uh, this little deviation of the story seems to suggest. <laughs> hey Jesus, I decided to leave all the raping behind me. Uh, I still get to go to heaven, right? Neato. If I stop raping down here, do I get to at least rape in heaven? Maybe I can sneak down to hell from time to time and rape some of those naughty chicks. <laughs> Why not? They're in hell anyway. <laughs> Heaven bros before hell hoes. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure why Little Harp seems to maybe try and lead a better life right here. Uh, maybe he didn't. Probably a scam. 
Sally, this Sally described as a frail blonde beauty, not yet 20 years old. A sweet young lass with a hankering to fuck a clown-haired Scottish savage. I may have added that second sentence. Uh, Sally, Sally's father approved of the match and uh, gave Wiley permission to marry her. June 4, 1797, Wiley Harp legally marries Sarah Rice, recorded in Knox County marriage records. His first wife, Maria, apparently transferred over to McCaja. That's what the sources say. What the fuck is happening in this story? He just transfers her. Harp spent a lot of their time in Knoxville raising hogs and selling pork to a Knoxville butcher named John Miller. Or maybe that's not quite how it went down. Miller soon started to notice that they, uh, you know, they came in very frequently. And they brought in more and more pork with them each time they came in. Almost as if they were stealing a lot of hogs from other sellers. The Hart brothers also were getting a reputation around town for doing a lot of drinking, racing horses, gambling. People who trusted the Harps initially grew suspicious quickly of them. Especially when a lot of locals' hogs went missing. Especially when shortly after that, a bunch of random fires started to break out and destroying barns, outhouses, and a few homes. Funny enough, all the fires seemed to happen, uh, you know, on the properties of people who voiced suspicions against the Harps. Probably a coincidence. In summer of 1798, neighbors finally catch Wiley and McCaja stealing livestock. Wiley and McCaja stole horses from a man named Edward Teal and ran off with their wives. All three of them. Some neighbors soon caught them red-handed with the horses, uh, but then the Harps managed to flee the area when a posse tried to bring them into a courthouse. Historian Coates wrote, Like all madmen, the Harps were never consistent. In their flight, they had left a trail that a child could have followed. They had shown no spirit when captured, but now suddenly their cunning awakened. Unnoticed, they sidled toward the edge of the road, leaped free, plunged into the forest, and it was as if they vanished. The group gave up on uh, looking for them after a few hours. That night, the Bloody Harps went to a local bar known as a Rowdy Groggery, frequented by hooligans. They found a man named Johnson, who they believe was one of the accusers. The bar was almost deserted that night, except for the owner, listed as a man named Hughes, his brother-in-law, two boys named Metcalf, his last name for each, Johnson and the Harps. According to Hughes, Johnson was drinking and asked for more. He told him he was closing up. And then the Harps showed up in the doorway. Hughes closed up the bar. No one knows for sure exactly what happened after that, but Johnson's body found in the river the next day, disemboweled and filled with rocks. The Harps were able to get away with this murder because the police thought that the bar owner and his brother-in-law killed Johnson. Hughes and the Metcalfs, uh, or brothers-in-law, that's right, two of them, Hughes and the, and, the, and the two Metcalfs were arrested but then acquitted for lack of evidence. The Harps now flee Knoxville, soon make their way to Kentucky. In November of 1798, the Harps ratchet up the killings. They go buck wild with bloodlust for the, about the next year. Real busy year for them, and they become pretty infamous. According to one biography of the killers, it did not matter whether you were white or black, native or settler, man or woman, adult or child, whoever you were, Big and Little Harp were happy to murder you. The Appalachians were extremely isolated with numerous tiny communities dotting the mountains, very little law enforcement around at the time, no established police force for protection from predators like the Harps, just like there would be no established police force in uh, so much of the Wild West decades later. The Harps' next victim, thought to be an elderly man named Peyton, his body found in Barbersville on the north branch of the Wilderness Road. He'd been killed with a tomahawk, his head nearly split in two. And uh, also robbed. A few days later, they murdered two men traveling from Maryland to Nashville. Their names were Paca and Bates. Both men were shot and mutilated with a hatchet just for funsies, I guess. Paca's head, like Peyton's, nearly split in two with a tomahawk. Uh, both found naked. Wiley McKay just stole their money and traveled to a tavern near Crab Orchard. In December 1798, the Harps reached Kentucky. The Harps moved along Boone Trace, a, a trail Daniel Boone and 30 axemen carved in March and April of 1775 from North Carolina through the Cumberland Gap and on to Boonesboro. 
part of the Wilderness Road. Their goal was to get to Crab Orchard, a gathering place for travelers. Crab Orchard was uh, a pit stop for settlers headed to several big cities, which would be the perfect place to target travelers. The town of Crab Orchard is still there today. Hasn't changed a ton. It was 234 people when the census was first taken in 1830. 744 people now. Well, in 2020. I'm guessing it hasn't changed much. If, if you swing through Crab Orchard, uh, please stop in at the Pastime Cafe and tell the owner, Angela, that Dan sent you. She will have no fucking idea who I am, but I spent way too much time last night figuring out who owns this cafe. At least who owned it very recently. And it looks like a very cute place with good reviews, good food, quaint atmosphere, and I think it'd be pretty funny if you did that. On December 13, 1798, the Harps now kill Stephen Langford, a man traveling from Virginia to Kentucky. Langford arrived at John Ferris's tavern on Wilderness Road. The tavern was just outside the settlement of Little Rock Castle between the uh, no longer around community of Little Rock Castle and Crab Orchard. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, the road between the two towns was 30 miles long and full of danger. Locals called it the wilderness. Most refused to travel uh, this area of the road alone. Individuals often waited at this tavern to find a group they could travel with so they could have some safety in numbers. What a great time to be alive. Uh, Langford wanted to go alone, but the landlord told him he should wait. Right, That someone would come along, he could make the journey with them. Langford took his advice and it cost him his life. The next day, Langford saw one large, ugly Scotsman, one smaller, uglier Scotsman, in a clown suit, pushing a traveling calliope, approached the tavern. <laughs> hey, buddy! You looking for some traveling company? We provide some killer companionship! <laughs> uh, Langford wasn't sure if he should take him up on that offer. Something about what the clown said seemed suspicious. But then he thought, if I'm traveling with a clown and some bandits show up, the clown will probably buy me some time to escape by distracting the bandits with uh, some juggling or uh, shooting water into their eyes with a fake flower or this really a squirt gun, you know? So headed out with the harps. Uh, he actually would head out with the harps, not because of the clown nonsense, of course. Uh, Langford really did see two men and three women approach the tavern. The day after Ferris, the tavern owner, told him to travel with the group. Coates, the historian, would write, they all had a ragged, lowering look. Langford hailed them jovially, asked them to wait while he breakfasted, and they would attack the wilderness together. Ferris now offered, them group, uh, offered the group breakfast. They declined, saying they uh, had no money. Langford offered to buy them breakfast instead. The bloody harps watched as he pulled a wallet full of money out in front of him. Langford asked the harps to join him on the trail. Because they had their wives with them, he thought they were just a normal family going to Kentucky, even though they had three wives. Uh, the harps agreed. Of course they did, after seeing all that cash. And then they murdered him. His remains were discovered a week later by some cattle drovers. Langford had been severely bashed in the head with a tomahawk, robbed, stripped naked, and left on the trail. Those cattle drovers took his naked body back to the tavern and the barkeeper identified him. Everyone suspected the harps. In January of 1799 now, Captain Joseph Ballinger, also known as Devil Joe for reasons never made clear, a man from Stanford, Kentucky, organized a posse to find the harps. It was surprisingly pretty easy to find them. They were arrested while just sitting on a log near Hudsonville along the Natchez Trace. They're only a few miles outside of town and Devil Joe Ballinger took him to a jail in Stanford. And of course, a character named Devil Joe will be the one to escort the Bloody Benders to jail. Right? Wait, Bloody Benders? That was <laughs> a different Wild West group. To uh, the, the Bloody Harps. Uh, I switched it in my head for a second there. I mean, who else is going to take the Bloody Harps? Twinkle Toes Tommy? Pixie Wings Pete? Uh, everyone in the group said that their last name was Roberts, except for Maria Davison. She took the alias of Elizabeth Walker. In court, Captain Ballinger testified that the group... Uh, you know, was found with Langford's wallet in their possession, linen shirts belonging to uh, Langford, uh, his great coat and other possessions. Innkeepers testified that they saw the group together along the wilderness. 
A judge determined that there was sufficient evidence to charge them all with murder and transfer them to Danville, Kentucky. They were now in the custody of district jailer John Beagler. Beagler was not happy about his new inmate situation. All three women were heavily pregnant, needed medical attention. He's also very worried about jailing the bloody harps. People discovered that the Roberts were the harps and then came from all over to have a look at the infamous prisoners who had already begun to make a name for themselves, probably uh, through some additional crimes lost to history. Robert Coates wrote, warned by their notoriety, the harps swelled with confidence. Big Harp boasted of his strength. He offered to take on any two men in a fair fight with his fists, provided he be set free if he bested them. Everybody seemed to think that was a fair sporting offer. Beagler, the jailer, began a series of requisitions for handcuffs and ironware balanced by condiments and infusions for the expectant mothers. I love the detail of everybody seemed to think that was a fair sporting offer. What a weird time. (laughs) Imagine a murderer today. Gets caught, you know, sitting in jail, and then the murderer tosses out a challenge of, I'll fight any two of you at the same time. If I lose, well, I guess I just got the shit kicked out of me for nothing. You can throw me back in my cell, but if I win, you set me free. And then the general consensus of the public is like, yeah, no, fuck yeah, bro. Nice. Uh, Let's do it. Feels fair. That sounds sick. I love reading about shit like this because it makes me feel better about the present. I mean, truly. Some days, especially when I've spent uh, too much time online, I can end up thinking like, uh, we're doomed, right? Despite our technology, we're the dumbest we've ever been. But then I read something like that and I think, no, no, I think we're a bit smarter than we used to be. Uh, The jail was constructed to be secure, but Beagler's records show he purchased two horse locks to chain the men's feet and then purchased some tea for the ladies. Uh, you know, he didn't. He also did not allow Big Harp to try and fight his way out of jail. February 13th, 1799, uh, Beagler purchases a new lock for the jail's main door. At the end of the month, purchases three pounds of nails to fortify the jail a little bit further. He was clearly worried about these fuckers being broken out or them breaking themselves out. March 7th, 1799, Beagler purchases tea, sugar, a new bed, pays for a midwife for the Harp women for their upcoming births. February, March, and April of 1799, Maria, Susan, and Sally do all give birth. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, he purchased that bed a little late for the February birth, but they give birth to uh, children inside the jail. Uh, before the third child is born on March 16th, 1799, despite Bigler seemingly doing everything he could to make sure the harps didn't bust out, uh, they do escape jail, leaving their wives behind. Sources don't say, say exactly how they escaped. Everyone in Danville now searches for the harps in, a, in hastily formed posses, and one group actually finds them. Coates wrote, suddenly, as they waded through the forest, two men rose before them, staring fiercely. There was a moment of startled hesitation. Then both parties, the Harps and the Posse, went tearing through the thicket in opposite directions. Posse member Henry Skaggs, known as the Kentucky Long Hunter, a man who'd ridden with Daniel Boone, a man who'd been part of the Wilderness Road, crossing a Rock Castle County, Kentucky, from Hazel Patch to Crab Orchard, had a piece of that road named after him, known as Skaggs Trace. Well, he wants to keep looking for the Harps but he can't get the posse to follow him. They're all too scared, too yellow-bellied. So he sets off alone. An hour later, Skaggs finds a crowd of settlers having a cabin-raising party, tells them the harps are on the run, needs their help. And Coates wrote, these men already half full of whiskey, seized demijohns and rifles indiscriminately and plunged uproariously forth on the hunt. <laughs> yeah, 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 let's go get them. Get those darn harps. Well, despite this new posse's initial enthusiasm, uh, they still can't find the wily harps. Right, soon it was uh, getting dark. Uh, the men were starting to lose interest. They decided to go home after a few hours. The whiskey had worn off. Once again, Skaggs continues hunting them alone. The harps show up again in historical records less than a month later, on April 10th, 1799, when they killed a 13-year-old son of Colonel Daniel Tribu, a descendant of French Huguenots. Tribu was born in 1760, raised in Chesterfield County, Virginia. 
Like many young men of his generation, Trabue was intrigued by the news of opportunities in the western lands across the Appalachian Mountains, a land that was becoming known as Kentucky. As a teenager, Daniel made a trip to the Cumberland Gap into Kentucky with his brother James. He stayed in Kentucky for nearly three years and loved it, spending time at Fort Boonesboro and Fort Logan. He returned home to Virginia before the close of the Revolutionary War, fought in the war, also peddled goods to American soldiers during the Yorktown campaign. 1782, Daniel married Mary Haskins, began to attain land, build a family, a degree of wealth, but he longed to return to Kentucky. In 1785, Tribune and his new family took the Ohio River route to Kentucky and settled in Fayette County near the Kentucky River. After staying there several years, they relocated to the southwest, lands near the Green River in present-day Adair County. Life is going great. He became a justice of the peace, a respected man in Kentucky, a brave militiaman, Right, He'd fought not just in the Revolutionary War, but in numerous skirmishes with uh, local tribes. But then in 1799, these fucking harp pieces of shit take his son. Henry Skaggs, that dude's still looking for the harps. He traveled to Colonel Tribu's cabin. Tribu agreed to join Skaggs, but asked him to wait until his son returned home. The boy had gone to a neighbor's house to ask for flour and beans. The men waited on the porch, smoking their pipes, doing some talking. After a while, the boy's dog runs up to the house covered in blood. The dog then leads the men into the woods where they find the boy's body. He'd been hit in the head with a tomahawk, savagely beaten, his corpse mutilated and dismembered. Also had no beans and flour with him, indicating he'd been robbed. Tribu and Skaggs hunt for days, but cannot find the harps. Man, cannot imagine the pain Tribu felt when he came across his son's corpse in that condition. Also can't imagine the rage he felt, right, towards the harps. Five days later, April 15, 1799, Susan Wood, still in jail, is convicted of accessory to murder. The other women actually acquitted of all charges. And then all three end up getting released for some reason. Uh, Coates wrote, their downcast looks, the hard condition of their life, the pitiful circumstance of their motherhood had all combined to sway public opinion in their favor. They were acquitted. Two of them, but somehow three get released. Uh, Danville residents take pity on the women, give them clothes, money, even a horse to go back to Tennessee with. And then Bigler, the jailer, uh, has spies follow the women all the way to Green River Crossing in case the harps uh, were to find them. The women uh, go to Crab Orchard, but instead of trying to uh, start new lives themselves, they sell that horse and purchase a canoe and decide to go out and search for their husbands instead of escaping. Historian John Musgrave gave his opinion on why the women did that. He wrote, I think the harp wives were brutalized, battered women trying to survive and protect whatever uh, children they could. During the early part of 1799, when the harps were barely midway in the killing spree, all three were pregnant or had just given birth. They had no way to survive apart from the men, not in the wilderness with no food and shelter when caring for infant children, not even if they thought they could get away without being tracked. Meanwhile, McCage and Wiley had fled north and killed two men named Edmonton and Stump. Stump was murdered along the Barren River. Fucking Stump, man. When you show up in an episode like this with a name like Stump, you're getting murdered. Uh, he'd been killed with a tomahawk, disemboweled, and once again, his stomach filled with gravel, his body dumped in a river. Then when the harps reached the mouth of the Saline River, they found three unnamed men camping at Potts Plantation and murdered all of them. Tomahawk to the head, gravel to the belly. You get it. Uh, now, uh, news spreads that the harps are heading north towards the Ohio River. On April 22nd, 1799, the Kentucky governor issues a $300 reward for the capture of each harp. The reward read, according to the renowned Bloody Heart Brothers historian, Sylvester Hobard uh, Ichabod Twillpepper. A reward of 300 shining silver dollars shall be dispersed to any man or beast, able to apprehend and deliver into the custody of the jailer of the Danville District 1, Makaja Harp, 
and three more hundred shiny silver dollars for two wily clown hair harp for the crimes of murder, rape, theft, skullduggery, chicanery, monkey shining, jiggery pokery tricks and tribulations, aggravations, loitering, hanky panky, double dealing, loan sharking, tax evasion, bootlegging, public intoxication, private intoxication, credit card fraud, identity theft, indecent exposure, kind of decent but still not very cool exposure, embezzlement, money laundering, money dry cleaning, narcotics distribution, operating without a medical license, operating without a very good medical license, insurance fraud, vandalism, shoplifting, and skateboarding in his own deemed via local ordinances to be a danger to public safety. Thank you for that wonderful information, Sylvester Hobart, Ichabod Twillpepper. Now with the reward, uh, really said, a reward of $300 to any person who shall apprehend and deliver into the custody of the jailer of the Danville District, the said McCaja Harp, alias Roberts, and like reward of $300 for apprehended and delivering as aforesaid, the said Wiley Harp, alias Roberts, to be paid out of the public treasury agreeable to law. God, they wrote fucking weird sentence structures back then. Uh, as soon as money got involved, posses formed all over to hunt down the harps. In the rampage, excuse me, these posses hanged 15 people, all of them not the harps, uh, whipped hundreds more, and sent numerous criminals fleeing out west. Uh, Coach wrote, the movement against the harps turned into a general cleanup of the whole territory. All criminals fled in terror from the posses, but no one could find the harps. Vigilante justice. Sometimes sounds appealing, but on further contemplation, almost always sounds fucking terrifying to me. Wonder if the 15 people all hanged by these posses were actually guilty of crimes worthy of hanging. I highly doubt it. May of 1799, the Harp brothers now traveled to Cave in Rock in southern Illinois, stronghold of the river pirate Samuel Mason. That's right, a river pirate. That was a real thing in this super fun time and place to live. River pirates and Tory rape gangs. What a time to be alive! Uh, Sam and Mason will uh, become known around this time as Mason of the Woods. He becomes known as this by, uh, he will often leave a message after his crimes, often written in the blood of his murdered victims, proudly stating, done by Mason of the Woods. Who in their right fucking mind is moving to this part of the frontier at this time? Uh, the posse is uh, still chasing the bloody harps in May of 1799, but stops right before Cave and Rock. A 55-foot-wide riverside cave along the Ohio River, now part of, the, of an Illinois state park, plenty big enough for a gang of outlaws to hide out in. Uh, Frank and Jesse James would actually later hide out in this cave for a bit. The Harps, their wives, who've now reconnected with them somehow, their uh, three children that they haven't killed yet for some reason, all join up with the Samuel Mason gang and stay in this cave as well. The Harp women were uh, already waiting for them when they arrived. And again, yeah, not known how they figured out to get there. Now the Harps will spend some time attacking flatboats along the Ohio River with Mason of the Woods and his river pirate gang. Coates wrote, boats snagged, sank, and all on board were drowned. Or what was worse, were set down unarmed and unprovisioned to wander, starving into the wilderness. Indians crawling on all fours, wrapped in bear hides, tempted the travelers to land. Landing, they were massacred. There was another danger even greater than the uncertain currents or the bitter evasive Indians. Bandits. From the Red Bank on down to the town of Smithland, the river traversed its most dangerous section. Shoals abounded. Sandbars lay just below the ripple of the surface. Islands split the channel. Landsmen, most of the river travelers were. As they came poling down, their jerry-built barges swinging awkwardly in the changing currents, they were helpless indeed to resist attack. A whole hierarchy of piracy had arisen to prey upon them. Yet again, man, such a fucking fun place to live back then. Uh, Cave and Rock was originally founded by a man named Wilson. 
as, as a, far as like a bandit hideout. He made his home in the cave along the shore of the Ohio River. The cave sat at the head of a maze of snags and riffles known as the Hurricane Bars. The cave had deep chambers and rock formations. Still does. Uh, Wilson eventually posted a sign at the riverbank saying, Wilson's Liquor Vault and House for Entertainment. The cave was known as Cave Inn, later Cave Inn Rock. Uh, Wilson and his gang would wait along the riverbank, offered to pilot boats through the difficult portion of the river. He and his gang would wreck the flatboats and rob the occupants. Sometimes travelers, uh, believing the cave was really an inn, would stop in for the night and be, you know, slaughtered. Uh, Mason in the Woods, not even the first river pirate to stay in this fucking weird cave. I would love to explore this cave one of these days. What a strange little slice of history this is. Uh, the Harps most likely knew about the notorious Samuel Mason, Mason of the Woods, and his Mason gang long before they met up with them. Perhaps they thought joining up with uh, other outlaws would, uh, you know, provide more safety. You know, while these posses are looking for him, the Mason gang considered ruthless, but even these fucking river pirates would be appalled by the actions of the harps. Coates wrote, the Western fringes of the young United States were lawless, dangerous places at the end of the 18th century. And one of the most dangerous spots was a large cave on the Ohio River near the Kentucky-Illinois border. The cave was populated by pirates, not of the swashbuckling kind who stalked the Caribbean earlier in the century, but of the petty, coarse variety often using the women amongst them to trick unsuspecting travelers into slowing their boats and nearing the cave where they would be attacked. They were some of the nastiest and toughest men and women around, but even they were appalled at the events they witnessed one day in 1799. This day, Wiley and McCaja are said to have forced a man to walk up to the top of the bluff above the cave. There, they tied him to his horse, blindfolded the horse, and then sent the horse charging over the edge of the cliff. Man and horse, of course, both fall to their deaths. The Mason gang witnessing this are horrified. Uh, the bloody harps literally laugh about it. Just kind of did it for, uh, for some sort of giggles. Mason gang uh, had a lot more than two members and they kicked the harps out of the group, warned them never to return. Again, Coates wrote about this. Uh, Upon reaching the cave, the harps joined the pirates in the trade of their craft, attacking heavily laden flatboat traveling down river with goods. After one such attack, the pirates threw an impromptu celebration inside the cave. Seeing only one survivor alive to tell the tale of the attack, the Harps developed a fiendish idea for entertainment. With the others, drunk in their revelry, the Harps took the survivor up to the top of the cliff, stripped him naked, tied him to a horse, blindfolded the horse, and ran it off a cliff. Suddenly, the outlaws in the cave became aware of the terrified screams, hoofbeats, and the clatter of dislodged rocks. They ran out of the cave. They could see the horse's neck extended, its legs galloping frantically against the thin air and tied to its back the naked, screaming prisoner, stark horror on his face. In an instant, horse and man are dashed against the rocks. They loved to make their victims take all their clothes off before they killed them, didn't they? Uh, I don't think there was anything actually sexual about that, though. I think they just wanted their clothes to either wear or sell. Hard to find time to go shopping when you're an outlaw out in the Western American frontier at the end of the 18th century. The Harps now head back to Tennessee, continuing their murder spree along the way. September of 1799, McCage Harp kills his own daughter, according to some sources anyway. Allegedly, the baby would not stop crying. So McCage, uh, being of an even fair-minded temperament, grabbed his baby and, quote, slung it by the heels against a large tree by the path side, thrown it from him into the woods. Holy shit. That is especially savage. But also, to be fair to McCage, Probably a very effective way to get the baby to be quiet, right? I'm not advocating for this. Not saying it was a good thing to do. Just acknowledging that I bet the baby was a lot quieter after it got whipped into a tree 
and tossed it to the woods. Let's move it along. Don't dwell on that. Just forget what I just said. Don't you fucking dare judge me for that. New guy, you shut the fuck up. Uh, July 22nd, 1799. The Harps murder the son of a man named Chelsea Coffrey at a location known as Black Oak Ridge, about eight miles from Knoxville now. The Harps needed a rifle. They stumbled upon young Coffrey who had a rifle. So, you know, they, quote, smeared a tree with his brains. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that's one way to, to get a new rifle. On July 24th, 1799, the Harps kill a man named William Ballard in the same area. No details are given regarding this murder by traditional sources. So, you probably see where this is going. Let's check in with Suckfer's harp historian, Sylvester Hobart Ichabod Twillpepper, and see what he wrote about this murder. Well, let me tell you a tale about old Billy Ballard. Billy was a good man overall who stayed true to his wife, Michaela Roberta Jasmine Mary Sue Ballard, and a fine father to his young'uns. But he wasn't much of a provider. Never could hold a straight job for more than a few months. And to keep putting taters on the table, he would often resort to wine cooler shining. Wine cooler shining's a lot like moonshining. But instead of making potent illegal whiskey, he makes sugary, not so strong, uh, but pretty tasty illegal wine coolers. And old Billy Ballard, well, he was known to hide in the brush just off a well-traveled trail. And pop up out of nowhere when folks strolled by, if they weren't the law, with a box of wine cooler shining in his arms. Blackberry breezer, strawberry daiquiris. Kentucky Colada, you name it, he made it. And on July 24th this year, he made the mistake of insulting Little Harp by popping out of the brush and greeting him with a line of, well, I bet a little clown like you could use a bottle of raspberry rum punch, light and fruity just like yourself. Oh, Billy! The man was aces when it came to making fine wine cooler shine, but he never was much for salesmanship. Never could read the room, so to speak, and a quick pitch got him a tomahawk to the head and a belly full of gravel. Well, thanks, Sylvester. I appreciate that. A little bit of fake history. Uh, back to real history now on July 29th, 1799. The Harps killed James Brassel near a place known for a time as Brassel's Knob. Brassel may have lived there. Brassel Knob, Tennessee. Uh, I don't think it's known by that name anymore since the internet does not toss uh, a location back in your direction when you search for Brassel's Knob, Tennessee. Uh, the Harps decided to change their strategy with James's murder. They pretended to be posse members looking for themselves. When Wiley McCage came upon James, it's pretty funny. It's fucked up, but also pretty funny to me. When they come upon James and Robert Brassel, two brothers, uh, McCage tells them, we're looking for the Harps. McCage then accuses the Brassel brothers of being the Harp brothers. Nice. He says, now I shouldn't be surprised if you was the Harps yourselves, you two. The Brassels protest, obviously. And McCage tells him, you say you've just come from Barbersville? Well, we'll just ride back there with you and find out. You couldn't want fairer than that. James, eager to prove his innocence, agrees to go with him. Then this poor son of a bitch allows him to take his gun, <laughs> truss him across the horse. He feels confident that once he uh, gets back to town, you know, he'll be acquitted and it'll all be over with. His brother Robert, seemingly the smarter brother of the two, runs off into the woods. While he's running along, he finds a party of friends, tells them that the Harps have kidnapped James. A new posse now sets off to find him and they soon find James's body in the woods. His head had been caved in, his throat cut, and his gun smashed against a rock. Excuse me. And then the posse is terrified when soon after that, they actually run into the harps. Coates wrote, somewhere in the interim, the women have rejoined them. Perhaps they had merely lain hidden in the thicket in the roadside while the two men went about their bloody work. At any rate, they're all there, lowering and sullen looking. The men, the three women and the children loaded with arms and ammunition. I'm picturing like fucking babies with guns right now. Moving forward in close formation, as if in a battle array along the trail. 
the posse decides to back down and allow the harps to pass. Again, I can't stop thinking about like a little baby. <laughs> Even the harp baby is just like fucking crawling along, but somehow they got like little tomahawks in their hands. Uh, that decision to, uh, you know, not pursue the harps further must have haunted poor Robert to his grave after those guys killed his brother. Also, how fucking insane is that they, that they flipped the script and pretended to be posse members looking for themselves and then accused two random dudes of being them. I just can't recall coming across that tactic before. Right? It makes me imagine someone uh, more modern doing that, like a, like a Ted Bundy type. You know, getting away for a little, little longer at the end of their murder spree by, by doing something as simple as just like, you know, putting on a baseball cap, joining a manhunt for themselves and trying to citizens arrest someone else that they accuse of being Ted Bundy. Bundy actually could have probably pulled that off. Uh, August of 1799 now, the vicious harps. Now they kill a man named John Tully in Clinton County, Kentucky. Also kill a random farmer named Bradbury. A few days later, they murder John Graves and his son because why the fuck not? The harps split both their heads open with tomahawks, throw their bodies into the yard outside the cabin. Neighbors find their bodies when they see buzzards circling overhead. Then they kill an entire fucking family and an enslaved girl near Adairville, Kentucky. This little town still around, just over 800 people. Historically significant little spot, actually. Just outside of this town, a year after the Hart murders, at a place called the Red River Meeting House, America's second great awakening religious movement will kick off. In the summer of 1800, America's first camp meeting or revival, like a tent revival, is held here. Revivals like this one will soon spread to New York State, the burned over district, and give birth to new 19th century religions like the Latter-day Saints, a.k.a. Mormonism, uh, Adventism, which will lead to the Seventh-day Adventists, which will lead to the Branch Davidian cult compound in Waco, Texas, and much more. Also, six years, just six years after the Hart murders, future president Andrew motherfucking Jackson kills Charles Dickinson in a duel in this town following a dispute over betting on horse race. Because that's how old Hickory liked to live his life. Impulsive, violent, and reckless. Scottish people. Got a lot of crazy in our blood. Uh, the Harps now decide to throw the posses, uh, chasing them off track by setting up a false trail back into Tennessee. They instead head into Henderson County, Kentucky. Their path indicated they were seeking out Colonel Tribune. Tribune had written an affidavit of all their known crimes and victims. He wrote their description and distributed flyers to all the settlements in the area. And the Harps must have gotten word of this and wanted revenge on the man who wanted revenge on them for brutally murdering his son. Is it still revenge if you're trying to harm someone wanting to harm you out of revenge? Don't they have dibs on revenge in that situation? Not sure. Men rode through settlements shouting, look out for the harps and distributing flyers. Everyone lived in fear that they'd become the next harp victim. Bloody harps have been on quite the rampage, drawing a lot of heat upon themselves around this time. While making their way back to uh, the harps they encountered, John Slover, local man, Coming down Highland Lick Road. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. While making their way back, the Harps encounter. I said that wrong. John Slover, a local man coming down Highland Lick Road after a bear hunt. Slover heard the click of a rifle behind him, turned around, saw two men pointing guns at him. One of them shot, but the musket ball missed and he escaped. At the time, he didn't know he had just faced the Harps and lived. On August 13, 1799, still in 1799, the Harps stayed at a farmstead in Webster County, Kentucky. And being the bloody Harps, you know, they try and kill again. They tried to attack local justice of peace of the peace, Silas McBee, who lived alone in the cabin. And their attack failed because he had too many guard dogs. A lot of guard dogs showing up in uh, valiant ways in this suck. Praiseable jangles. One evening, McBee heard his dogs barking and he called out for any strangers to show themselves. He then saw the figures of two men walking along the road and into the woods, the Hart brothers. And they decided to move on. Man, I don't think they would have decided to move on if they would have come to my cabin. It would have been Penny and Dee Dee guarding the house. Two little fluffy fucking weasels 
that would have encouraged the Hart brothers, if anything. It's like, ah, that guy has fucking those dogs? Are you serious? He clearly doesn't care about his safety. Uh, locals living around the farmstead, the Harps ended up crashing out, watched the strange men for about a week, but didn't think they were the Harps, started to relax. August 20th, 1799, the neighbors around decide to end their surveillance of the Harps. August 21st, the Harps set out to meet their wives at a nearby rendezvous point. The women had been collecting supplies and money for the past week. Sources, didn't, sources don't say how uh, they were collecting that money. So many dead areas of information around this uh, story. Maybe they, uh, maybe they juggled. Maybe they gave hand jobs behind a stagecoach. Maybe they uh, sold some uh, wine cooler shine. Maybe they ran an underground cat fighting ring. I don't know. Uh, the group now runs into James Tomskin, a local. Tomskins, uh, or Tomskins. No, Tompkins. Fucking names are never exactly what I think they're going to be. Tompkins believed them when they said that they were entrant preachers now. Wiley McCage had recently purchased new suits uh, for this disguise. Tompkins invited them uh, into his home for a meal, and McKay just said a lengthy blessing. Tompkins asked the supposed preachers why they were so heavily armed, and McKay replied, We're such dreadful men as the harps abroad, my friend. It behooves us all to protect ourselves. Nice. Tompkins admits uh, he's uh, out of gunpowder, and now McKay generously and randomly pours him some gunpowder from his own powder horn and then blesses the house before he leaves. Why would he do that? Maybe he just didn't want to draw even more attention upon himself. Uh, Tompkins would soon give this same gunpowder to a man who would use it to shoot Makaja. And that is why you never are supposed to help anyone. It only ever ends up getting you killed. Uh, August 22nd, 1799. The Harps passed through Canoe Creek in Webster County, Kentucky. And kill a bunch of people. They murdered three victims that evening. Mary Stegall, uh, Stegall. Uh, Major William Love and four-month-old baby James Stiegel. How all this went down is very bad, even by their standards. They were looking for Mary's husband, Moses Stiegel. There was a rumor in the community that Moses associated with the Harps. Wrote Coates, he was a man of sudden disappearances, of long voyages to destinations only hinted at, of strange parlaying with furtive individuals. All these things, little noticed before, were to give rise to much comment later on. Moses was uh, still out of town when they show up. Uh, Mrs. Stiegel was up late because her husband was expected to arrive home that night. Major William Love, a surveyor, was at the house because he came to uh, do some business with Mr. Stiegel. He was in the loft napping while he waited for Mr. Stiegel to get home. Mr. Stiegel, uh, or excuse me, Mrs. Stiegel allegedly knew the Harps, but her husband and her husband had warned her to never reveal their identities to anyone. So when they show up on her doorstep dressed as minister, she runs with it and introduces them to Love under false names. The Harps chat with Love for a bit, ask for news about the Harp Brothers' search. After filling them in, the hour grows late. Soon, all the men decide to go up to the loft to sleep. Then, while they lay in the loft, not long after Love had fallen asleep, Makaja decides he should smash him in the fucking face with his tomahawk. Why? According to some sources, because he was snoring, and it pissed Makaja off. I get it. I mean, when you're really tired, and you can't sleep because someone nearby is snoring, I bet it, will, I would, I bet it would feel pretty good to take a tomahawk to their head. Uh, the murder must have been completely silent because Mrs. Stiegel didn't notice anything was amiss until the brothers came down from the loft covered in the man's blood. And then McCage told her, he snored, <laughs> this is the quote in sources, he snored so much. What did ye mean by putting us in with a man that snored so? And then Mrs. Stiegel uh, now becomes very upset for some reason. She must have been a really sensitive person. To get all worked up about one of her house guests, Tomahawk and another house guest's death over snoring. When sensitive Sally's baby then starts to cry, the Harps, clearly suffering from a lot of misophonia, strong aversion to certain enraging noises for these guys, uh, they cut the baby's throat. I told you it was going to be bad. 
Uh, Mrs. Uh, Stegall screams, I told you she was sensitive. Uh, and now they kill her as well for screaming. Then McCaja and Wiley set their friend Moses' house on fire after murdering his fucking family, hoping to attract nearby justice of peace, uh, Silas McBee, because I guess they wanted to kill him too. And when McBee doesn't show up, they decide to flee the area. Shortly after they leave, Moses now arrives home to find his house burning down and the dead and burnt bodies of his wife and son. And I guess he was as sensitive as his wife was because he got really pissed about this. He, for some reason, he got really worked up about you know losing his home and family in the same instance. Uh, he quickly organizes a posse to hunt these guys down. The Harps now flee west to avoid the posse that was chasing them, a posse led by Moses. He has a lot of time to hunt him now, right? His schedule just uh, really opened up. And the posse consists of Moses, Silas McBee, Samuel Leeper, James Tompkins, and John Williams. The group, the group rides through the night, searching for the bloody Harps. They discover the bodies of two more Harp victims as they do so, neighbors Gilmore and Hudgens, who the Harps must have encountered while running away. Gilmore was shot. Hudgens had his head fucking bashed in with the butt of a gun. In their haste to chase down the harps, no one in the posse remembers to pack food or water, though. Fucking amateurs. Whenever I'm taking off on a posse, I always bring drinks and snacks. At least juice boxes and granola bars. Come on, guys. Uh, the posse then forced to stop for the night and begin the hunt the next day. Despite the setback, the next day, August 24, 1799, the posse locates the harp women. Wife number three, Sarah Rice, tells the group where McCaja and Wiley have taken off to. The women and children are taken to Chattanooga put in an empty blockhouse inside the neighboring town of Red Bank. The posse catches up with McCage and Wiley soon after locating their wives. They catch the bloody harps attempting to kill a settler. They're always trying to kill somebody. Kill a settler named George Smith. They're able to save Smith's life. They call for the harp surrender, but the men flee in different directions. Wiley flees into the brush on foot. McCage takes off on his horse. Wrote coats. It was rolling country. The pursuers rode down one slope and up another. At the second hilltop, they had closed to within rifle range. Samuel Leeper was in the lead. He fired the shot. It seemed to have no effect. And when he tried to reload, he found his ramrod stuck in its casing. In the rainy weather, the metal had rusted and jammed. He dropped his bridle. Still galloping, he tried with both hands to free it, and he did so. As he did so, Tompkins spurred up alongside him. Here, take my gun, he offered. You got the fastest horse, and you're the best shot, so you better take it. And say, he added, tapping the gun barrel. I just recollected the charge of powder in there is from that feller's own horn. He gave it to me day before yesterday. Now seems like you ought to be able to hit him with that. Seems a little dramatic, but maybe it happened. Four posse members shoot at McCaja. They all miss. John Leeper shoots. He misses. This posse, they're worse at shooting than they are at remembering to bring drinks and snacks. Always when you posse up with people. Leeper now takes Tompkins' gun, shoots again, racing on his horse to catch McCaja. McCaja turns now, aims at Leeper. Leeper fires one more round, and this time with McCaja's powder. He hits the man right in the spinal cord. Very specific shot. Wrote Coates. His pursuer saw his arms jerk wildly. With an effort, he waved his tomahawk in one last flourish, his hand perhaps obeying some inner spasm of pain. He yanked his horse's head about and spurred straight for the thicket. The posse now caught up to him, pulled the now paralyzed man from his horse. Steagle approached McCaja, kicked him, threatened to cut his head off. McCaja begged him for water. Once given some, he confessed to his crimes. He confessed, according to this posse, to over 20 murders. He also said the only murder he regretted committing was killing his daughter for crying that one time. McCage lived for about an hour after being shot. During that time, Moses furiously paced around, wanting to cut his head off. At one point in his frustration, he pointed his rifle at McCage. When McCage flinched, Stiegel threw his gun down and laughed. <laughs> All right, I wouldn't shoot you in the head anyway. I want that head. I told you I was going to cut it off. And then, choosing not to waste any uh, more time, Stiegel avenging his wife and baby's murders, 
Moses cuts McCage's head off while he's still alive. Wrote Coates, Stiegel took Harp's own butcher knife. When Leaper had compelled him to deliver up, which Leaper had compelled him to deliver up, and taking Harp by the hair of the head, drew the knife slowly across the back of his neck, cutting to the bone. And then McCage said as he died, this sounds like some fucking really dramatic shit added by Coates for sure, but who knows? You are a goddamn rough butcher, but cut on and be damned. If he somehow did say that as he's getting his head cut off after getting shot in the spine, he's one of the toughest dudes to ever live. I mean, he's a piece of shit, but not a sissy. Uh, the posse now wedges McCage's uh, head, decapitated uh, head into the fork of a tree at, cro- at a crossroads near Henderson, Kentucky. And that intersection will be called Harp's Head for many years. And I couldn't figure out why. I researched it a whole bunch. I was like, why is it called Harp's Head? Sources don't say. Come on. Uh, but what about Wiley? He's still running free. In August of 1799, Wiley Harp escapes the posse, flees all the way back to the Mason gang at Cave and Rock. Despite them kicking him out before for being a fucking psychopath, for tricking a horse into jumping off a cliff with a naked dude tied to its back and then laughing about it, they take him back in. Probably hard to find good psychopaths back then who could really handle themselves. And maybe they figured they could handle one psychopath, Harp brother, just not two. Wiley now disappears from the historical record for several years, possibly living under the alias of John Seton for at least some of those years. Uh, Back it up to 1799 before we reconnect completely with Wiley. On September 4th, 1799, the three women who ran with the Harps, all charged with being parties to the murders of Mary Stiegel, James Stiegel, and Major William Love. They're ordered to stand trial in Russellville, Tennessee, a little town recently annexed by a neighboring Morristown. The next month, all three women, excuse me, all three women hanged. Their heads are cut off and used as fucking soccer balls by kids in town as a message. You fucking run with bad guys. We'll cut your head off and treat it like a game. No, they're released. They're released again from prison. And now their time with the Harps is over with Makaija dead and Wiley vanished. Sally Rice goes back to Knoxville to live with her dad. She marries a highly respected man in sources, has a big family in Illinois. Susan Wood stays in Russellville and lives a respectable life. She'll die in Tennessee. Maria Davison marries a man named John Huffstutler on September 27th, 1803. In 1828, they'll move to Hamilton County, Illinois. They'll have a large family and live in Illinois until they both die in the 1860s of long lives. All seems to have ended well for the Harp ladies after what was likely years of, you know, hellish abuse. Now there's only the uh, story of Wiley to wrap up. In 1803, there was a large reward posted for the head of Samuel Mason, that fucking river pirate. Mason of the Woods that Riley's uh, still running with. Wiley and a fellow river pirate, James May, decide to kill Mason, turn his head in. A lot of fucking heads getting tossed around this story. Uh, turn his head in for money. When they present his head, they are both arrested. Right? Backfires on him. And then Wiley and May both escape prison. But then both are quickly recaptured, tried, and sentenced to death. But then Wiley escapes another time by convincing the guards that they have wrongly imprisoned an innocent traveling clown falsely accused of being a harp brother. <laughs> Why am I in this cell? If I was a bloody harp, how would I know how to play this traveling clappy? How'd I even get this traveling clappy into my cell? <laughs> Come on, let me out. I'll make you a really cool balloon animal in the shape of a fucking tomahawk. I'll use the split you're fucking in it too. <laughs> Whoops, <laughs> God dang. Uh, I guess I am a bloody harp. Uh, Wiley does not escape again. Uh, February 8th, 1804, Wiley and James May are both executed. Both their heads are cut off. Not even joking. There's so many heads getting cut off in this part of the story. And their heads are placed on stakes along the Natchez Trace to serve as a warning to other outlaws. And the bloody saga of the bloody harps is now over. 
Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Before I recap today's wild tale, how about I fake recap it with some fake harp history collected by premier suck first harp historian, Sylvester Hobart, Ichabod Twillpepper. Uh, did you know that his initials spell shit? Well, hot diggity dog. What a tale. What a tale. The history of the bloody harps is forever a part of the fabric of America's push westward following the Revolutionary War. The harps did much in their lives and most of it if looked at in a certain light, was really, really good. I mean, they were fantastic fathers when it came to teaching their kids to be quiet. They were great husbands when it came to Stockholm Syndrome. They were tough, honorable men who didn't tolerate disrespect from anyone peddling wine cooler shine. And the younger brother had some serious musical talent. Not every clown can play a traveling calliope like a little harp. They were handy men. They could build a cabin. They could swing a hammer into a nail as easily as, say, swinging a tomahawk into a snoring man's skull. Most of all, they were dedicated patriots, real patriots for Britain. A lot to be said for that. A lot of Americans double-crossed old King Georgie, but not the harps. They were loyal. They were born a part of England. And they wouldn't just turn their backs on her over some tea and stuff when times got tough like other traitors. Don't let the history books fool you. They're the good guys in this story. America's founding fathers of true crime. And America does love true crime. They were strong, loyal men demonized by a soft new nation and revisionist historians. Didn't have the stomach for tying men to horses and running off cliffs for giggles and swinging noisy bothersome babies into trees and doing raping and stuff. The bloody hearts, fine men, fine Americans, founding fathers. And it was a joy, an honor, and a privilege to share their wonderful, inspiring life story with y'all today. Uh, I probably should have mentioned that uh, Sylvester is severely mentally ill. Uh, sorry, I didn't say that earlier. Now for a real recap. Today's story reminded uh, me a, a lot of uh, two previous episodes. Clearly, the, the Bloody Benders. I actually called them that at one point. Suck 218. And Suck 270. Boone Helm, the Kentucky cannibal. Oh, man, Boone and these guys. I was going to say they would have gotten along great, but no. Now they're probably trying to kill each other. Uh, murder on the American frontier, right? Savages making an already savage environment so much more savage. All three of these episodes remind me that we are living in pretty good times comparatively. Sure, we've got plenty of shit to worry about today. Plenty of wrongs need to be righted. That'll always be the case. But we don't have to worry about river pirates or murderous trail bandits. I continually forget how truly lawless in so many ways the frontier was, right? No infrastructure to effectively deal with, uh, you know, men like McCage and Wiley Harp. Who knows how much of all the exploits of theirs I shared today are actually true. But what is true is that they were rough enough to stand out from other bandits and murderers in a very rough, murderous chapter of American history. And that says a lot about them. We'll never know exactly how many people they robbed, you know, murdered or raped, but we do know they were robbers, murderers, and rapists. The Harps came from Scotland to America during the final stages of the French and Indian War, entering a politically tense and turbulent country. Wiley and Macasia grew up in a loyalist Tory family. They fought as their fathers did for the British during the American Revolution. At some point during the war, their parents were murdered by a patriot lynch mob intent on exacting revenge on the loyalists. Murders like this were all too common on both sides, as were so many women being ravished. The Hart brothers spent much of their time in the war not actually fighting for a political cause, but using the backdrop of a chaotic war to rape and pillage as part of a Tory rape gang, a gang of loyalists who were really just social deviants who did whatever they wanted to whoever they wanted. 
In the spring of 1775, after raping three girls already, Wiley attempted to rape Susan Wood, daughter of Continental Army Captain James Wood. Wood prevented prevented the attack, sent the Harps running, but they wouldn't forget what happened. And they wouldn't forget about Susan. The Harps left the Tory gang, joined a band of Cherokee warriors who were raiding settlements in North Carolina and Tennessee. Probably did a lot more raping and murdering and plundering with them. In June of 1781, the Harps returned for Susan Wood and kidnapped her, along with Maria Davison. These two women were forced to become wives and endured constant rape and physical abuse from their husbands. They went where the brothers went and ended up helping them commit some of the robberies along the way. What other choice did they have out in the wilderness of the American frontier? The Harps were so savage as husbands. Numerous sources say they murdered both of their firstborn children. The Harp family lived in Nickajack, a Cherokee Chickamauga village for over a decade. They participated in several raids on white settlements. In 1794, a group of angry settlers destroyed Nickajack, forcing the Harps to flee once again. 1797, they traveled to Beaver Creek outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. Wiley Harp fell in love with Susan Rice, a minister's daughter. They actually get married in June of 1797. The Harps were a happy family for about a year, kind of. Not sure what the first two uh, wives thought about new Susan. Then the Harps were caught stealing livestock. They fled town, but not before they murdered at least one of their accusers. In late 1798, they now set out on an incredibly bloody murder spree that made them infamous. The Harps murdered, it seemed, just about anyone who happened to wander across their path. They murdered people who thought they were safe in their homes, those who thought they were alone in the wilderness. Their victim count has never been confirmed, never will be, but it consistently is listed in sources as anywhere from 35 to 50 men, women, children, babies. The Harps continued killing despite arrests and numerous posses intent on finding them. They escaped on several occasions once they were caught. The murders of Mrs. Steagle, Captain William Love, and four-month-old baby James Steagle finally led to the capture and death of one of the cousins who passed themselves off as a brother. Moses Steagle and a posse of men hunted down the Harps and found them in the woods. The women were arrested, but Wiley and McAja, uh, McAja were able to run off. Wiley escaped. McAja was shot down, confessed to all his crimes before Moses brutally beheaded him, put his head on the road as a warning to other outlaws not to do what these men did. And as a celebration of revenge of, uh, over McAja's death. I mean, the guy killed Moses' wife and only child and burned down his house. Wiley Harp ran back to Cave and Rock to work with those same river pirates that kicked him and his brother out of their gang earlier. He'd remain a member of Samuel Mason's gang, Mason of the Woods, for a few years. But then when a bounty came for his boss, he quickly tried to claim it. He was arrested instead of rewarded. And he was executed in February of 1804. And just like his brother before him, had his head removed from his body and put on display as a warning. Not a lot of good news in this story. But all the Harp women were acquitted of the crimes they committed. All the bloody Harps controlled them. And they would go on to live long and peaceful lives. The bloody harps, the vicious harps. What a crazy ass story. I bet it pairs well with some, some wine cooler shine. Let's uh, look back at it a few more times. And of course, learn something new with today's takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Wiley and McAja Harp were the sons of Scottish immigrants, John and William Harper, two brothers. Despite being called the Harp Brothers, Wiley and McCage were actually first cousins. Their real names were William and Joshua Harper. Later changed to Harp, they assumed the identities of Wiley and McCage when they joined the Tory rape gang as young men. Number two, the Harps killed anywhere from 35 to 50 victims. Their victims ranged a lot in age and gender. They killed travelers, family men, women, at least four babies, young girl. Uh, they were ruthless monsters who didn't discriminate in their victim type and had no remorse for their actions. McCage Harp murdered his own baby. When she wouldn't stop crying. The, the second of his own babies he reportedly killed. Some sources say the second baby was the only murder he ever regretted committing. 
Number three, if the harps had a signature way of killing, it was to either disembowel a victim and fill the body cavity with rocks and then try and sink him in a river. They did that uh, several times, but it never worked. Or it was to mutilate their victim by tomahawk, their favorite murder tool. Number four, the harps are considered America's first documented serial killers. From late 1798 to late 1799, it sure seems like they killed just about anyone they came across. And number five, new info. There was a paranormal legend associated with Mikaja Harp, Big Harp. A place called Witch Dance is located between Tupelo and Houston, Mississippi. The little towns are about 30 miles apart. Witch Dance was uh, once the home of the mound builders of Mississippi, and according to local lore, also allegedly used by a coven of witches for nighttime ceremonies. Wherever the witches' feet touched the ground, the grass withered and died. McCage traveled along the Natchez Trace with an indigenous guide one day who supposedly showed him a dead spot in the grass, told McCage about this witch dance. McCage scoffed and leapt around from spot to spot, dared the witches to come out and fight him, but nothing happened. That sounds like Big Harp. This legend claims that after McCage was decapitated, a witch took his skull, ground it into a powder, and used it in some sort of healing potion, and she must have sprinkled some around the grounds of witch dance as well, because now some claim to hear his mocking laughter coming from the woods in that area. Glad the ghost of Big Harp is just laughing at people who walk by instead of, you know, tomahawking them or smashing babies into trees. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The bloody harps have been sucked. Uh, Hopefully the dates weren't too distracting. Again, so many of the dates, very inconsistent sources. Uh, Tried to stick with the ones believed in the most. Uh, Believed in the most. Yeah, I I think early on, when I talked about uh, maybe how old or started talking about how old the Harp brothers were, there was date confusion. I don't know. Got a little jumbled in my brain there for a second. But uh, but I think I grabbed the best details. Uh, the, the backdrop details, a lot more legit of the war and stuff. Yeah, I, I uh, learned a lot of additional history that I was not familiar with before about the Revolutionary War era. Man, what a couple of scary bastards. Uh, Thank you, as always, to everyone involved, starting with the queen of bad magic, Lindsay Cummins, for making this week's show. Thanks to Logan Keith. The Keith, the art warlock, for directing and producing today. And uh, the Suck Ranger, Tyler C., working on the lighting, uh, cutting clips from the episode for socials. Thanks also to Bit Elixir for upkeep on the Time Suck app. The art warlock, Logan, again, for creating merch at badmagicmerch.com and for helping run our socials along with the Suck Ranger. And a team managed by our social media strategist, Ryan Handelsman. Thanks to producer Sophie Evans, again, for the initial research this week. Thanks to the All-Seen Eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group, uh, The Mod Squad, for making sure Discord keeps running smooth, and everyone over at the Time Suck subreddit and Bad Magic subreddit. Next week on Time Suck, we get into a very recent true crime case that made media headlines. Uh, maybe not in the way uh, you would think when first hearing about it. It's perfect for Halloween. Much of it feels like something out of a horror film. When Kathleen Mangan discovered what her husband, 25-year-old NYPD officer Gil Valley, was actually doing... During nights uh, he spent awake after she went to bed, nights on the computer in their living room, she was horrified. Far from what she assumed, instead of keeping up with sports stats or cheating on her even. Turned out Gil was dedicating his time online to porn, but not just any porn. Cannibal porn. Using the website Dark Fetish Network, Gil had been in communication with other cannibalism enthusiasts for years. They wrote back and forth to one another comparing fantasies. And then Kathleen was worried that maybe all this was not just fantasy. Gil had sent pictures of his female friends, acquaintances, and of Kathleen herself to his friends online, describing in horrific detail what he'd like to do to them. In a lot of graphic details, Gil wrote about how he'd like to kidnap, torture, rape, kill, and cook women, especially his wife. 
Now afraid for her life, Kathleen turned over the laptop to the FBI, who came to believe that Gill was hatching a plan. On October 24, 2013, he was arrested for conspiracy to commit kidnapping and a proper use of a police database, which he'd used to learn sensitive information about possible would-be victims. Then things get even more complicated. Gill, in his defense, uh, claims that he is just expressing fantasies while doing this and that convicting him would be like convicting someone for a, a thought crime. They compared the writing he did online to the kind of writing Stephen King does. I've read a lot of Stephen King. I don't know that he does exactly this. Saying that Gill had every right to share and express his fantasies no matter how fucked up they were. A jury would disagree and convict Gill. But then in 2015, another jury would agree and appeal uh, would reverse the initial jury's decision and Gill would become a free man. He uh, admittedly is still chatting online about how sexy it would be to carve up and cook and eat women. What the fuck is happening here? What exactly were the fucked up fantasies that Gill was writing about? And were they fantasies at all? Are they just fantasies? Where do you draw the line between a violent daydream and a real plan to do something terrible to another human being? All this next week is going to be a lot of interesting territory to explore in another twisted cannibalism-filled episode, a Halloween episode. Uh, Now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. Our first message is regarding last week's suck. Comes from an anonymous Tennessee-based sweet sack who writes, Hey there, you beautiful bastard. Long-time listener, first-time caller here. I live in Memphis, Tennessee, and have lived in the area most of my life, so I'm no stranger to what gang violence can do to a city. From rapper and Memphis legend, Young Dolph being shot 22 times while buying his mother cookies and what appeared to be a gang-affiliated murder to Ezekiel Kelly's mobile mass killing spree just last month, Cities like the one I live in and work in are in pain and are tired. You cannot be more on the money when it comes to your views on how to make these problems go away or at least cut down on them. This city is full of crime, low-income neighborhoods, understaffed schools, run-down buildings slash roads, yet the government is stuck in its ways when it comes to the legalization of any vices. I believe just the legalization of recreational marijuana in the state could put a real dent into these problems that plague our communities. I wish for more access to programs and for better education for our youth and the future of our city. But sadly, I watch as our government keeps their head in the sand. I hope for a brighter future for not just my city, but for our nation. Thank you for your time and keep on sucking. Well, thank you for this message. Yeah, Tennessee, one of the few states where marijuana remains uh, an illegal controlled substance for all purposes. Neither recreational nor medicinal use is allowed. Why? Political optics and ignorance. There's no other reason. I have never heard another fucking good reason. Did violent crime suddenly spike tremendously in states where weed became legal? No. Actually, there was nearly a 20% reduction in violent and property crimes in California following the legalization of medical cannabis there many years ago now. So if, if keeping marijuana illegal doesn't make anyone safer, why the fuck are we doing it? Ignorance, stubbornness, pandering, right? By politicians to the self-righteous country club crowd. It's fucked up. Legalize it all. Portugal did. That country has not become a cesspool of crime, right? Take money, making opportunities away from violent criminals. Take away their reason to fight. Don't give them vice to fight for, turf to defend. There's no fucking way that won't help. Might be a rough transition, right? You know, period into like a new type of normal. But I say we roll those dice. I believe 100% it would help reduce violence in the neighborhoods, you know, seeing the most violence. Uh, Now baby maker and funny sucker. Andrea Archuleta, thank you for the pronunciation guide, uh, shares some suck-related pregnancy woes. She writes, greetings, O wise and fearless leaders of the cult of the curious. This message is almost a year in the making. 
My superstitious self couldn't bring myself to message until now. Maybe the queen of the suck could have recommended some crystals to help. For context, though my husband has been a space sister for years, I only started working through the back catalog last year when I was pregnant. While I have an amazing stepson, we faced a very long battle with fertility issues when we decided to have a meatball of our own. When it finally happened, I was afraid I would jinx it by talking about him too much too soon. Now that he is almost a year old, I feel like I can safely send that the much overdue scathing email about how Dan fucked a space lizard's pregnant wife, (laughs) not once, but twice. The first time was early on when I had been confidently grateful that I had minimal morning sickness. The streak was broken when I first listened to the Jersey Devil Suck and Dan whipped up the piney song. For whatever reason, the imagery of sucking puke out of someone's beard had me gagging at my desk and bolting for the nearest bathroom. I should have stopped then, but I was already hooked. The next act against maternity, <laughs> act against maternity, was when we found out we were actually having a hell spawn. I was listening to the time suck while getting ready. I was listening to time suck while getting ready. And my little demon hadn't been moving much that morning until the recording of the possession of Annalise Michelle. <laughs> uh, he then did the biggest barrel roll ever as if trying to reach the song of his people. And in my illogical hormone brain, I was convinced I was spawning the next devil child. Oh, my pain gives you all a smile and then my ADD mom brain makes sense in the off chance any of this makes it onto the suck. Could you please give a shout out to my amazing husband, Kevin Hall? He kept me sane with our ups and downs fighting both uh, fighting for both our kids custody with one making the other carried me through a taxing pregnancy and postpartum now works nights, sometimes 16 to 18 hour shifts so that he can then come home and watch our hell spawn all day. So we never have to leave him with a stranger or daycare. He's the most amazing partner and father I could have ever dreamed of. Personal incubus. Nice. And maybe most importantly, the one who got me hooked on Time Suck, especially DJ Iceberg. No idea why. That's a fun button to hit. Where is where is DJ Iceberg? He's a uh, he's around here somewhere. Maybe, maybe he's maybe he's in the secret suck ones. I'm I have to get this out of my head now. Oh no. <laughs> he's he's gone. Oh no, DJ. Oh, there he is. It's so big. Yeah, that's just the tip. DJ Iceberg. Iceberg. <laughs> uh, thanks again for all you do. Sincerely, Andrea Archuleta. Good luck with that one. Well, I would I would have messed it up. I would have messed up Archuleta if you didn't write the pronunciation guide. So thank you, Andrea. And Kevin, good job. You shot one past Andrea's goalie. Well done. Uh, thanks for working hard for, uh, for your family. Thanks to both of you. Working hard for your families. Love stories like yours, man. Fighting... To do the best you can for your family, there's no more noble purpose, I don't think. I wish you and your demon spawn nothing but the best. May your little meat sack demon rise up and rule all of us. Hail Lucifina. Now sweet sack and son, Griff, has a nice shout out for me to share. He writes, hey, Time Sug crew. As was the case in my past updates right on the show, my father, the policeman, is the main character of the story, but this time not an on-duty story of his. But I figured the cult would get a kick out of it nonetheless, if they even hear it. Last month, my dad was promoted to lieutenant at his department, a tremendous achievement that, at least in my opinion, has been a long time coming. As one would expect, that promotion has come with its peaks and its drawbacks, but one of the uh, perks, excuse me, perks and drawbacks, one of the perks was that this past weekend, he was sent to Fort Worth, Texas with his department's other newly promoted lieutenant and their commander for the 2022 International Association of Chiefs of Police Conference. Naturally, the whole weekend, he sent my brother and I some pictures of what he's been doing because that's just how he is. For example, he sent his pictures from the Texas Christian University football game. He went to Saturday afternoon. Picture of him with Eric Estrada, who played Ponch in the original Chip series in the 1998 movie. And today happened. 
Saying my father is history buff is a massive understatement. And Dallas has some pivotal, has had some pivotal events occur in his history. So when he had some free time this morning, he went into town to take a tour of one of those specific events. At 9.30 a.m., I'm lying in bed and, he, and the texts start coming in. First, I get a picture of a seemingly innocuous Dallas house. Then I get a picture of a plaque memorializing Dallas PD officer J.D. Tippett, who was murdered by a suspect on November 22nd, 1963. If that date rings a bell, you already know where this is going. Then he sends us pictures of the old Texas school depository building that rather eerily has the corner window on the first floor down from the top propped open. The final picture I received was of the adjacent street with two X's marked on it because those are approximately where John Fitzgerald Kennedy was shot by Lee Harvey Oswald from that corner window. Yes, my father did a tour of the JFK assassination. The house was where, uh, where Oswald stayed the night prior. Officer Tippett was killed by Oswald about an hour after the shooting as he was trying to escape. May he rest in peace. And the building and road speak for themselves. My bro- brother and I both responded with the same version of, Dad, what the fuck? It's 9.30 in the morning. He then lectured us on the gravity of that day's event, something we were both well aware of. As the sons of a history buff, uh, we were both just half awake. That's just who my dad is, someone who cares deeply about his country to the point that he took a rather morbid tour of a tragic crossroads in his history when he had a few hours free to himself. And between his military service and career in law enforcement, has dedicated almost 30 years of his life to protecting the people in it. So, Mr. Dan, or Lord of the Suck, if you read this on air, could you please wish my dad a happy 54th birthday? He's the best father I could have ever asked for and one of the greatest meat sacks I've ever known. And my brother and I know how lucky we are to have him as those two things often do not go hand in hand. Sorry, not sorry for the length. Hail Nimrod. Help your boy out, Lucifina. Glory be to Triple M. Your humble space lizard, Griff. Well, Griff, what a great son you were to write and send this message. And what an amazing man your dad seems to be. Thank him for me. If he doesn't listen, uh, sure, there are terrible members of law enforcement like LAPD Police Chief William Parker we talked about last week, but so many more others who are motivated to keep us all safe and so good at what they do. People who keep us from being harmed by those uh, people like, well, like the bloody harps, like modern day versions of them. If society descended into lawless anarchy, I am positive there would be a lot more bloody harp types out there than we would like to think about. So happy birthday, Griff's dad, 54 years young. Thanks for doing what you do. And now one more message from Top Shelf Sack Dante, who writes, Dear Dan and the Bad Magic crew, you don't deserve nicknames after this. All right. It's going to be a very long email. and I will not apologize for it. Before I get into the meaning behind the subject line, I will give you some background. I found scared to death before time sucked because of my mom and I was hooked. I would listen during school, working out, playing video games, just whenever I could. Eventually I ran out of episodes, so I decided to try time suck. Started with the Skinwalker Ranch episode and I got really confused and I stopped listening. That's fair. Fast forward a few months and I'm uh, halfway through my junior year of high school. I noticed that I couldn't see out of my left eye anymore. Everything was super blurry. Spread to my right eye. And from then on, I became legally blind. I have no central vision. I could only see out of my periphery. I was diagnosed with a rare mutation of adult onset Lay's disease where only five other people in the world are known to have had it. Holy shit. My life was flipped upside down. I became really depressed. I even contemplated suicide. Couldn't play rugby anymore, which is my favorite sport. Also couldn't play video games, which is how I bonded with my friends. I stopped hanging out with people and I just wanted to die. I became super bored during all of this because I couldn't do a lot of the activities I loved. So I decided to retry Time Suck. And I fucking hated it. No, uh, and I, (laughs) that's not what he wrote. And I love it so much now. You and a lot of other suckers have inspired me to keep going and try and succeed despite the odds. I became the long snapper for my high school football team. Graduated with a high GPA, got into college with a nice scholarship. I also have an amazing girlfriend who's been so supportive, but won't listen to the suck. So I might have to break up with her. Yeah, probably gonna have to tomahawk her. 
Don't do that. Uh, anyways, I owe you so much, so much to you and the community you've built, but I'm pissed at you when you announced the charity of the month was Guide Dogs for the Blind. You made me cry in my student union at the busiest time of day. I cried in front of at least 100 people because you warmed my heart, you sick fuck. I was so touched that people want to help people with blindness, visual impairments, because I feel like we don't get as much credit as we deserve. Also, I met Lindsay. Sorry if I misspelled uh, her name. I'm blind, so I don't know how it's spelled. At your Cleveland show last year outside of the bathrooms, and she was super cool. Ah, is she? No, she is. Uh, can't wait to see you in Columbus next year. Love the show. Three out of five stars. Wouldn't change a thing. From Dante LaBianca. Well, thank you, Dante. I am so glad that I made you cry. That's why I went into comedy years ago. To make people I don't know fucking weep. That's why I keep doing this. More tears. Sure, there may be funnier comics out there, but no one in the comedy business makes more people weep than this motherfucker. No, but seriously. So glad you're doing so much better than you were and uh, and having fun with this weird shit and letting it be a, a positive distraction. Nice place to get lost in. I, I hope you have a blast in Columbus. I'm, I'm so glad that you are kicking ass after, you know, life dealt you a heavy blow. And, you know, I, I can't, no one in the right mind would blame you from going to a dark place. But then how you rebounded is fucking inspiring. So good on you. Uh, you know, glad that our charity choice made your heart happy. I hope it uh, helps you, uh, you know, connect. I hope uh, this donation, excuse me, helps connect some great dogs and some great folks. Uh, praise Will Jangles. And I uh, hope it make you cry again going forward. And also sometimes laugh. Now I got to push this button. Next time, suckers, I needed that. We all did. Another Bad Magic Productions podcast has been completed. Felt, felt a little weirder than normal this week. Feeling a little loopy. Ran with it. Please don't join any rape gangs or tomahawk anyone or slam babies against trees. When faced with a decision, any decision you're unsure of, think, what would the bloody harps do? And then do the opposite of that and keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. Hello there, Meat Sex. It's Sylvester Hobart, Ichabod Twillpepper. I just wanted to speak to you a little bit more. I, I found myself with a source. And I wanted to see if it was just kind of fun to weave a story out of a lot of similar words. Maybe we can talk about alcohol. Drink liquor, spirits, distiller hoops, moonshine, poutine, rock guts, Mountain Dew. Spirits us fermenty. Maybe you're having whiskey out in a, a rural area on the backcountry, the backwoods. Bucolic, idyllic, pastoral, provincial area of rustic, Arcadian, countrified, natural outland, rustical, simple, vitalic land. And then once there, you got to stay away from people who want to Bloodshed, crowd destruction, homicide, lynching, manslaughter, massacre, shooting, slain, terrorism, annihilation, butchery, foul play, trying to bump you all with a one-way tigger about the business, the works, liquidation, a knife, and a dispatching of your death and carnage. I don't know if that's entertaining for you, but it's nice to do this voice for me. It's a fun way to deflect things. And a raging but uneven routine. I'm just reading things out of my phone now. Getting emails from Park Wills and Storm Drake, Alex Hollander, Vimeo, 
notifications, SAG after communications. HBO Max is trying to get a hold of me. Let me know that the White Lotus season two is coming soon. I don't give a shit. I didn't watch White Lotus season one. I don't know. I don't know why. I'm getting an American Express. Oh shit! Large purchase approved. What's Lindsay doing? Coinbase bots. Who the fuck are they? Four big firms making crypto moves. Okay. Delta Airlines, let me know it's time to check in. And the Inlander Sneak Peek is telling me to vote, vote, vote. I've tried to unsubscribe from their spam messages for many years now unsuccessfully. Fine Brew Cafe Orders. That's when I got myself a smoothie earlier. And uh, Call of Duty. Let me know that there's less than 24 hours until campaign early access. We are 141. I do not have time for your warfare today, Call of Duty, but perhaps soon. I can let some five-year-olds talk shit after sniping me in every fucking possible situation that I uh, try to partake in. Maverick's men's hair gives me a, a reminder of my appointment. Zoom, uh, Joan has just joined my meeting. That's my mother-in-law. And I was not in that meeting. That was my wife. She uses my email frequently. Yahoo Fantasy. Okay, got to set my week seven lineups and pick for executive premier gold standard. Oh, who do I got? Christian McCaffrey, Lamar Jackson, Tyreek Hill. Oh, shit. Going to be a good one for me. That's all for me, Mr. Twillpepper.